house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Say you do? Well, that's a secret. And why is that? Well, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't want to see me again. Who said I was going to see you again? Would you? Well, let's take this place. Say it was a bank, and instead of that counter up there, that was really a teller's window, and you just walk in, real calm. So you walk right up, look her in the eye, and you say, ma'am, this is a robbery. And you show her the gun, like this. And you say, I wouldn't want you to get hurt, because I like you. I like you a lot. So don't go breaking my heart now, okay? <sighs> You're not serious. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that Helen Mirren keeps trying to get to switch to briefs. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with my young man, my rich man, <laughs> A old man, increasingly a old man. Uh, yes, for real. Uh, God bless uh, J.K. Harry and my favorite scene from Two Two Seven that you, that you used as the two te- as the teaser for. Uh, yes, for I forget episode. what you did, but I I didn't tell you that's how I was going to tease this episode or uh, you know hint at this episode, whatever you want to call it. Name something you must have in order to live. A man. One of the seven wonders of the world. A rich man. <laughs> Something that improves with age. A young man. A Christmas present you'd exchange. A old man. A condemned person's last request. Anything. And uh, uh, I think you sent me some type of gay slur. Uh, me? After I never. Rue, never. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, you better work, is what I said. No, um... Yeah. Your your teases as ever. I will I will happily uh, remind anybody who reacts to those teases on the on Twitter that that is one hundred percent a Chris File joint. That is your lunacy at work right there. And uh, I'm happy <laughs> you're like it. not me. I am smarter than this. I'm the lunatic who puts the weird uh, the songs at the ends of the episode. If you want to yell at somebody for lunacy in song choice, I'm the one responsible for Imagine Dragons at the end of the uh, Murder on the Orient Express episode. Chris is the lunatic responsible for the Twitter Jesus. So that's how you uh, divide. Okay. Um, I could have also used, it might have been more literal and not require you to like have some context clues with that actual Jack Hay hip or clip. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Jeff Bridges television program is called The Old Man. It sure is. It 100% is. There are TV shows these days. It's so funny. There are 8 billion TV shows. The competition for eyeballs couldn't be any more fierce. And yet these TV shows are just brazenly titling themselves in a way that tells you, like, you're going to fall asleep. Exactly what it is. Well, exactly what it is. But, like, what's going to excite me about watching a show? I'm going to call the show The Old Man. I'm going to call a show (laughs) Slow Horses, which, like... 
I've actually heard that that show's not bad, but it's called People Slow are really picking horses. up on Slow Horses, and I may have to watch just for Jack Loudon. Same. I mean, yeah, same, and I love Jack Loudon. But, like, you're doing yourself absolutely no favors. This is what, what was the Michael Fassbender, Cody Smith-McPhee Western? Um, slow West. Again, slow West. don't put the word slow in your movie title. It's yeah, just gonna... that movie should have just been titled Ben Mendelsohn in a Giant Coat, because, like... That's the reason to see that movie. Well, it could also have just been called, like, We Got Colors, because that is, like, the most colorful Western I have ever seen in my entire life, and that's the thing I love best about it. It's so good. Who directed that movie? Uh, Great question. And what is that filmmaker? Give me a second, because, like, I feel like we should be paying attention to that filmmaker maybe more than we do. Watch it turn out to be somebody who, like, held children hostage or some sort of other awful thing. Slow West. Slow. Highly recommended. Like slow West belongs with the bones. <laughs> exactly. Slow West. Slow. It's it's so slow. The slow West. That's a little bit more Russian, though. That's their little... Uh, uh, Maybe. I don't know. Listen, I, I am not a trained dialectician. Slow West was directed by John McClane, who hasn't directed a feature since then. So... It's too busy uh, saving Nakatomi Tower. Well, <laughs> uh, is that what, did I say that wrong? I don't love that movie. Die Hard. Die, it's not like I watch Die Hard every year, but like the time or two that I watched it, I was like, "That's a very good movie." I do love a a hammy Alan Rickman in anything, but my hammy Alan Rickman of choice is, of course, the Sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and, and yes. that's just sort of how it is. Come through drag. Um, okay, so. The title of this movie, though, The, the Old, Old Man, Man and the Gun, Gun, yeah, lends itself to the type of like blunt title that we're talking about. Uh-huh. Yes. And yet, but it's, it's got gun in rather... there. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I mean, like, you kind of have to understand why it would be titled The Old Man and the Gun. You have to like see the movie to be like, actually, that's an interesting title because it's a character study and like the gun is representative of so much of this character. Blah, 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 blah. Well, and so much of the way that this story is told is told in like an almost a tall tale fashion, right? It's like the legend of this of this guy. Everybody's sort of like telling their story about their interaction with this guy. He's a little bit, um, if not larger than life, than like, you know, uh, a character from a novel. And so in that way, the old man and the gun sounds like the name of a of a fable almost. You know what I mean? Or a, or right. a tall tale. And I think that works really well. It also is obviously like a play on the old man and the sea, which is not a book I've read. So I don't really know if there's any more of a connection <laughs> than that. But that's fine. I don't hold it against it. It's also a title that I think if people were more aware of this movie or not kind of oversaturated with things to come uh, at the time of its season, this could have been a joke title. Yes. In terms of like, you know, Ben is back. Me tapping you on the shoulder and being like, that's the gun. Like when that's he pulls that. the gun out. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, the gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a great I movie. This. I will say that. I've, I feel like it's come up several times in the past like year and I keep saying we got to do that movie mostly just because I wanted to watch it again. Yeah. Um and I definitely think, you know, I liked it at the time, but like sitting with the movie made its reputation grow and I was so yes. glad that my rewatch of it fulfilled that yes. and that 
you know, this truly is an exquisite, wonderful movie yep. that uh, I hope more of our listeners uh, watch. I saw it at TIFF in 2018. I saw it late in the festival of 2018. It was one of the last handful of movies that I saw. And mm-hmm. I think at the time, probably the thing that I liked best about it was that it was like 90 minutes. It was just like bing, bang, boom. Right. It was just like, it was so, because at that point in the festival, you're just like, you're, you're dragging ass. But I also remember being like, oh, that's a delight. That's, you know, what a great time to spend with these actors, Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek. And I'm obviously a big David Lowery person and I've only become more so in the years since then. Um, But watching it again, I had that same feeling of just like, oh, no, this is like a really, really well done movie. And I'm interested to talk about it in the guise of Oscar because this is another one of those movies where it's like... Nobody didn't like this movie, really, when it came out. It's not like this movie was like, uh, love it or hate it kind of a thing. Most people liked this movie, uh, liked it uh, quite a bit, in fact. And yet, beyond the Golden Globe nomination that Robert Redford got, it was never really a serious threat to, you know, major Oscar nominations. Well, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. I think, A, at the time, people kind of, while no one was outright negative on this movie, I think, and even going back through the, like, letterbox logs that people were watching it at the time, thinking the movie's not enough this, it doesn't do enough with this with the character, and I think it's a lot of people wanting the movie to be something that it's not, even while they say that they like it. Whereas if they let it be the thing that it actually is, which is this kind right. of, you know, fable character story that ends up actually being a romance. Right. They would appreciate it even more, I think. It's also a matter of priorities because this movie opened right after the festivals where its yes. response was fairly muted. Yes. Muted positive. Yes. And... It's the same season that Searchlight has, you know, bigger fish to fry, theoretically. Yeah. And well, and the other I, thing is, you if you go back, I sort of skimmed the Rotten Tomatoes reviews of this movie, and almost every single one of them mention the fact that the word around the time was that this was Robert Redford's last movie, maybe. And I say maybe because it was sort of announced that this was going to be his last movie. And then in the publicity for this movie, everybody kind of soft pedaled it. I remember that being like, even like when I interviewed David Lowry for the movie, by that point, they were already kind of walking back this idea that it's definitely his last movie. And of course he would appear one more time in a film in Avengers <laughs> Endgame. Endgame, which everybody was like, you talk about like the one thing on the handful of like the things that surprised people in that movie. I think a lot of people were really surprised, even given all the cameos in that movie that Redford not only shows up, but like does a scene. It's not like he's like Michelle Pfeiffer standing by the docks, paying homage to Tony Stark or whatever. Like Redford shows up for a scene. And, um, but anyway, so this sort of like you you would have thought that maybe the idea that like this is Robert Redford's last movie might have had a little bit more of an urgency to nominate him. And yet I think that kind of quasi soft peddling of like, well, he says that, but maybe not blah blah blah. They kind and of soft peddling around the time that people were beginning to see the movie. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's like and like all of that was probably in the service in service of like the truth. You know what I mean? It's just like right. and yet 
you know, if they had been a little bit more mercenary about it, then maybe. But Robert Redford's history with Oscar, which we'll also get into, is interesting. Yes, he would, that's why I kind of want to put a button. He's beloved, in but in like a peculiar kind of way. Right. Right. Yeah. So we'll put uh, a pin in that. We'll we'll come back to this because uh, I want to get at least to the plot description before we really dive totally. into Robert Redford. Totally. Um, and I mean, we're also talking about Sissy Spacek, who I mean, name oh. another charming person. Sissy Spacek, she so immensely so charming, wonderful in this movie in the kind of role that is very easy to overlook. Um, right. She sort of she shows up when the movie sort of wants to have its romantic scenes, and it's definitely a movie about him. And she's sort of like the girlfriend. She, she represents. She's uh, you know she represents. A different life that he could be leading. And yet she is absolutely, I think, largely through SpaceX performance, this really present character. And the scenes between them are dynamite. And it's just them talking. And it's so fucking good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about, like, there's no, like romance or romantic comedies anymore because no performers have chemistry with each other and it's just like we have old man in the gun it's not even five years old and like you want to see chemistry put a red light at the front of that diner because like there is some you know there it's uh not not for the children the degree of uh, chemistry going on between redford (laughs) and spacek in that scene ah so good um, we'll definitely talk about Sissy Spacek. Uh, one thing I didn't realize that I'm sure we might get into, Robert Redford and Sissy Spacek both won their Oscars at the same ceremony. That's a fun curiosity. I didn't realize until preparing this episode. Yeah. Coal Miner's Daughter and Ordinary People were the same year. Yes. Yes, they were. They were. Very interesting. Very curious. Had they starred in a movie together, though, before this? I don't think they had. I don't think so. Which is, I like, mean, kind of amazing. Look- like their heyday of their career, which, you know, I think when we think of Sissy Spacek, we think of more of the 70s, but most of her nominations are in the 80s. Yes. Um, the thing about the 80s, I, I, I we don't get a chance to talk about this enough because we don't really talk about the 80s very much. But especially in the category of best actress, there's like a handful of actresses who absolutely, utterly dominate the 1980s. And it's Meryl in the early 80s, but then it becomes very much Spacek. Jessica Lange, um, Jane Fonda to a degree, and oh, who else is it? But like, it's like Spacek and Jessica Lange are showing up a lot in the 1980s, essentially, um, mm. throughout Best Actress. And and sometimes for these movies that really have no other footprint than, you know, a, a Best Actress nomination for them, and because it was them, that's maybe why some of these nominations happen, like Sissy Spacek's nomination for The River. Yes. Uh, she's like three of Jessica Lange's nominations. She wins for Coal Miner's Daughter, which is 1980. Missing is 1982. She's nominated. Uh, the River, 1984, nominated. Crimes of the Heart, 1986, nominated. And I think have you seen Crimes of the Heart? I have. I, I like that play, but I have not seen the movie. It's a it's a weird and wild little movie, and not everybody's accents work very well. And it's you could probably call it overbaked, but like I had a good time with it. Um, Meryl gets a bunch of nominations in the eighties, like I said. Uh, Jessica Lange is nominated, I think, like four times in the eighties. Maybe it's just like it's really is just like a concentration of 
this handful. And it's all for like movies that really we've a lot of them, like we've largely forgotten, like the river. Nobody really talks about nobody talks about uh, Jessica Lang playing Patsy playing Patsy Klein in Sweet Dreams, Jessica Lang in that movie Music Box, which I think is about, like, prosecuting a Nazi war criminal, maybe? Yes. Um, It's interesting. The 80s and Oscar is a really fascinating time on, like, a lot of levels. Uh, I've talked about the um, how the it's the best decade ever for the best original song category. Like, I... I, mm-hmm. I uh, but But, like... Other categories, it's a it's a weird sort of wilderness time. I don't know. It's fascinating to talk about. Should we uh, maybe get into the plot description then? Yeah, why don't so we? So we can talk about this movie that we both really like. Full disclosure, I did not pre-prepare a script for my plot description for this one. <laughs> and this is a movie that, like, there is some plot, but it's very vibesy. Like, this is very, yeah. like... Um, chill out it's a it's a chill out movie about a bank robber so to the point that maybe i don't even think to the movie's detriment but in a way that makes the movie odder than you expect like the plot is still unfolding yeah well into the movie when it should just be kind of all payoff but like because it's so vibesy and so like chill lean back into this movie yeah it doesn't feel uh, strained in a way or manic um well like up until the end it still continues to feel like a a patchwork quilt of other people's impressions and stories of this guy mm-hmm. uh, i saw a, a some sort of tidbit somewhere where lowry had said that he didn't really want to make a movie about a bank robber he wanted to make a movie essentially about robert a robert redford character and yeah. I think that really comes across in this movie. And a lot of the movie plays like uh, he he said this in another interview somewhere where it's like, this is the movie that Forrest Tucker, the Forrest Tucker character sort of envisions in his head about his own life. And like, that mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. And that, that plays into. And I like that movie better than probably other people's conceptions of what this movie would have been. 100%. Like, it's a much better uh, Robert Redford movie than it would have been like a Ben Affleck movie. You know what I mean? Ben Affleck's obviously a lot younger, but like the story of like, you know, a you know, a criminal who's uh, a gentleman or something like that. Or know. even like a Harrison Ford movie. Totally. Like it, it yeah, this this movie maybe doesn't exist because it takes so much from, you know, Robert Redford's ethos and history, but also like the kind of vibe and um you know, texture of the movies of his heyday, too, mm-hmm. some of which maybe we don't, like, talk about as much. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's not the obvious movies from the 1970s that, you know, totally. get regurgitated at nauseam. Totally. But, listeners, we are here talking about The Old Man and the Gun, written and directed by one David Lowry, based on the New Yorker article by David Gran. Starring the one and only Robert Redford, Sissy Spacek, Casey Affleck, Danny Glover, Tika Sumter, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., Tom Waits, Lizzie Moss, six-timer Lizzie Moss. We Get will ready. have a six-timers quiz. Get ready. This episode. Yes. Uh, also Keith Carradine and John David Washington. Babyface John David Washington. John David Washington, who really doesn't show up on screen as much as you hear him off screen. Yeah. And I think 
<laughs> that's some of the stemming of the how much he sounds like his dad. It's it amazing that this is the least... same year as Black Klansman because this movie looks right. like it was made like five years before Black Klansman. Right, right. It's very funny. Uh, yeah. Uh, the motion picture premiered at Telluride and then TIFF and opened limited September 28th, 2018. Yes. Mr. Joseph Reed. Yes. Are you ready to give a 60-second plot description of The Old Man and the Gun? Sure. All right. Then your 60-second plot description starts now. All right. It's Texas in 1981. Robert Redford plays a career criminal named Forrest Tucker who robs banks but is a gentleman about it. We see him rob a bank at the very beginning, and on his getaway, he stops by to help a stranded motorist in the guise of uh, to help him evade the cops. The stranded motorist is played by Sissy Spacek. They have a wonderful meet-cute. They go to have lunch at a diner. Uh, the chemistry is out of control. And he uh, continues to romance her while being sort of like vague, but like uh, a little forthcoming about what he does, but not really. It feels like it's plausibly kidding that he could be a bank robber. Meanwhile, at the same time, Dallas police detective Casey Affleck is on the trail of Forrest, and it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game. Uh, uh, Casey Affleck sort of comes to respect this guy the more he hears people talk about him. Finally... Uh, this all comes to a head. Uh, Redford ends up does get end up getting caught. Ten seconds. Uh, he's on the run. He rides a horse. He gives himself up. He goes to prison. Sissy Spacek comes to see him. He gets out of prison and he robs a couple more banks and he gives the camera a little wink. Not really, but like metaphorically. And it's a uh, it's a good time. Four seconds over. There were other things I could have gotten into, but I think that's the general gist of it. You know, he's in. I he's, mean, like the. A lot of the movie is setting up the legend of this man, not his actual actions. Like, you see yeah. all these people that he's robbed, and they're like, he just seems so nice. He seemed like he was having a good day. You see him being, you know, somewhat comforting to yeah. the uh, bank teller that it's her first day of work when he's robbing. Right. Eventually, in the getaway, you know, he's he's carjacked. A car with a mother and son, and, young son. and to keep them safe, he drops them off at a chicken joint rather than, you know, keeping them on the pursuit of the police. Right. Um, I want to make mention of a character actor named Gene Jones because he plays one of the bank. He's like a bank manager or something. He's the one who, after uh, Forrest robs the bank, he sort of locks the door and is like, "Everybody, we've just been robbed." And oh, and Casey Affleck's like, "My daughter's in the yeah, car." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Casey Affleck's in the bank when Forrest robs it, actually, and he doesn't realize it. Uh, but this is the same guy who plays the gas station attendant in No Country for Old Men. The flip a coin. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? So, like, y'all getting any rain up here, way? What way would that be? I've seen you was from Dallas. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo? I didn't mean nothing by it. Didn't mean nothing. Just passing the time. If you don't want to accept that, I don't know what else I can do for you. Gene Jones has run the gamut of, first of all, movies with old man in the title. Uh, and also <laughs> just sort of interacting with these really enigmatic criminals. And like, that's the spectrum of it, right? Where Anton Sugar is terrifying and Forrest Tucker is such a lovely gentleman <laughs> about this whole thing. <laughs> um, but I thought that was very interesting. And, and yeah, this idea of like the gentleman bank robber is this very comforting 
fiction that I think is woven into this idea of American mythmaking, American storytelling that I think serves this movie very well, right? Where mm-hmm. this is not a warts and all telling. This does not like it in as much as it talks to the other people in his life, really the Elizabeth Moss scene where she plays his daughter who he maybe never knew about, um, is the only p- part where we see somebody who's been in some way scarred by his forest's crimes. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That she she's, you know, she's a little messed up by the fact that like this guy is her dad. And by the time she was able to even realize that he was in prison and never knew about her and all this sort of stuff. But everybody else sort of has walks away from their interactions with this guy feeling good. You know what I mean? He, yeah. You know, what a nice man. <laughs> And um, that's just sort of the vibe of the movie. And I think Redford's the perfect actor to play this role. And he, of course, he's the one who came to David Lowery with this project. He had read this New Yorker article. He wanted to make the movie. And then he had apparently, well, Ain't Them Body Saints was a big Sundance uh, hit. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Redford runs Sundance uh, still to whatever degree he was – you know, hands-on with Sundance, I think he remains, or at least, like, remained in the, Figurehead, in the teens, at least. but, like, seems to, like, pay attention to the goings-on mm-hmm. in Sundance, you know what I mean? And so, yeah. saw Anthem Body Saints, he was intrigued by Lowry, and he came to Lowry with the idea to do Old Man and the Gun, and it worked out really well, so. David Lowry's so interesting because his movies all kind of couldn't be any more different from each other, but I do yes. think that there's this idea of myth yeah. or like the birth of a legend in a lot of his movies. Um, he also like, you know, story being the myth of the afterlife kind of it yeah. is this kind of, uh, I suppose it, it is somewhat of like a fable of the afterlife. Ain't them bodies saints is like this myth of this, you know, basically Bonnie and Clyde type figure. Yep. Pete's dragon is like the. Myth it's a fairy of, like, tale. Yeah, it's a fairy tale fable of childhood. Yeah. Green um, Knight is very much all about you know this larger than life. Percent. You know uh, the, this tale that's older than storytelling itself. Almost, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, he's a really, really interesting. That's why you talk about you've made the joke before about like every iteration of COVID brings in a new Pinocchio tale. We're almost at that with Peter Pan too, with like, there's so many Peter Pan stories. And yet like, I'm interested to see what Lowry's version of it is. Um, Yeah. David Lowry might be the one that gets me to watch a Disney plus original. Like, Um, but it's, uh, it's a really interesting career that he's had. Actors work with him. Again and again, which I think mm-hmm. speaks well of him. Redford had been in Pete's Dragon and then is in this again. He worked with Casey Affleck a bunch of times. Um, he also, a thing I didn't realize until I was researching for this movie, he co-edited with Amy Simons on Sun Don't Shine and um, uh, Shane Carruth on Upstream Color. And like Shane Carruth is, mm-hmm. you know, not a nice person. Bad man. Um, but Upstream Color is an incredibly... A well edited movie and you know mm-hmm. um and lowry edits his own movies too uh i also made a note of um and i need to refer to my notes because uh daniel hart who is the composer for this movie who has done the music for 
all of Lowry's movies, I'm pretty sure. The score to this movie is Jesus Christ. Dynamite. Like, it's so, so good. good. And we nobody was talking about the score of this movie nope. at the time. And it is so good. I mean, there is a lot of it to the point where it's like maybe there could be a few less music cues because it feels like you're listening to the score for the whole movie in a way that like maybe it veers slightly to too much, but it is always so exquisite and contributing to the atmosphere of this movie. I was going to say it's not cloying, not indicating what you're supposed to feel, but feels like of a piece with everything else that's going on. You're not necessarily wrong that sometimes it's like, oh, this is a lot of score, but this is the kind of movie that I think accommodates that better than most. Because again, the right. style of this movie, the sort of the tall tale aspect of this movie, I I quickly I went into 2018 and I sort of grabbed my. Uh, I went into my awards and I was like, what were the scores that I was looking at? And like 2018 is kind of a rad year for score because it's Bretel for Beale Street, which is one of the best scores that we've had ever. Like one of the best movie scores of all time. Ludwig Goransson's Black Panther score, which won the Oscar and is fantastic. Uh, This one for Old Man and the Gun. One of the more underrated scores that I always yell about because it comes from a genre that doesn't really you wouldn't really think to go to for like craft uh, achievements, but like Cliff Martinez's score for Game Night is so good <laughs> and so fun. And anytime I get a chance to talk about that, I want to tell people about that because it's like it's really, really uh, top notch work, and I love Cliff Martinez. And Cliff Martinez is one of those composers who like does really good work in genres that you wouldn't normally expect. So. Um, yeah, 2018, a rad year for score, and it would have been really, really nice if Daniel Hart could have been recognized for this one. I would also add uh, Justin Hurwitz for First for Man, First Man. Which I think is probably his best work. Oh, well, um, until now. I think Babylon's the best the best thing he's ever done. It's so good. I maybe have some limitation. I mean, I think that score is oh, rad. It's but so good. He rips himself off in that score, and I do think that's part of the intention of the movie. I agree. But I think yeah, that I think takes that it. First Man score is pretty incredible. <laughs> I I like First Man. I don't like it as much as the people who love it. Obviously, that's a, sort of definitional. But um, I was just blown away by the Babylon score. I think it's so good. Yeah. But anyway, good composer that Justin Hurwitz. I sat down with him once and I said, "Surely there's an easier way to make a living." And he looked at me and he said, "I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just talking about living." Chris, we're going to put a pin in Robert Redford, Robin Banks, and being real sweet with Sissy Spacek to talk about the Vulture Movie Fantasy League once again. We are... Um, big uh, update this week. Big update this week. We got Golden Globes winners points. We got SAG nomination points. We got DGA points. There's a lot going on. The Producers Guild also happened, but those points go into next week's update, so we're not going to talk about that here. We're just going to talk about... Um, the Golden Globes. And I wanted to sort of float by you because the crux of my newsletter this week was essentially, was this the, is are the Fablemans back in the game, essentially? Because I think right. a lot of us had sort of mentally started resigning ourselves to the fact that the Fablemans was going to sort of fade away into the bin of, not fade away entirely, but like go into the bin of early frontrunner that ultimately gets surpassed by something more of the moment, maybe. I was saying that Fablemans was going to get Irishman. Yes. 
And now, after the Golden Globes, which we all agree that, like, the Golden Globes does does not have an impact on the Oscar voting in terms of, like, there's no crossover between membership, obviously. We know this about the Golden Globes. There is no actual statistical reason why the Golden Globes should be a bellwether for the Academy, except for the fact that it allows people who win to go up and give a speech and essentially, like, preview their case for, like, wouldn't you want to have a moment like this on your Oscar ceremony? Mm -hmm. And I thought Steven Spielberg, in two speeches, made a pretty good case for why The Fablemans is a special one. And that's sort of the case that The Fablemans needs to make if it wants to win anything at the Oscars. You know what I mean? If it doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be Irishman at the Oscars. So what did you think of that? Um, I think that's true. I think it would still be really interesting. I, I'm i skeptical that it has a shot really much of anywhere to win other than picture and director at the Oscars, which right. would be odd. Um, but less odd these days. I feel like we're moving towards the era of, at some point I think we're going to end up getting in the next 10 years, this could be a bet, Um a Best Picture winner that only wins Best Picture, like a Grand Hotel. I feel like we're going to get a Grand Hotel in the next 10 years. I think that's possible. I also, I mean, I think that there, you know, the Oscars are still, we're in the middle of uh, Oscar nomination voting right now. Yes. Uh, actually, I think by the time this episode airs, it will be either the last day or the day before the day before the last voting closes. Yeah. I still think that that's a lot of momentum. It's going to have to keep up. Uh huh. I agree. Um, because I do think everything everywhere is still way ahead of it. I also agree. Um, but I think at least it has a pulse now. It was. It's weird to talk about the Fablemans as being dead in the water when it's still being widely predicted to have like five to eight Oscar nominations. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Like it's going to get a bunch of Oscar nominations, but. I think we've been around the block with Spielberg lately, re- you know, recently with this, with like, with Lincoln, with The Post, with West Side Story, where it looks early on like, it's Spielberg, it's the Oscar, how can he lose? And then you get to the end of that season and it's just like, yeah, people really weren't like feeling the need <laughs> to give Steven Spielberg more Oscars. And this, the, with the Fablemans, it really did feel like, what's it going to take? Is it going to? There's take... definitely more sense of urgency with this movie than there was with, say, Lincoln to honor Spielberg. Well, it's funny because when I was on the Little Gold Men podcast at the beginning of the season, and we were talking about our year ahead stuff back in April, and I think a few of us made the rationale for the Fablemans, which was, what's it going to take for Spielberg to finally win the Oscar? He's going to really need to, like, pull at the heartstrings. And we all assumed that that's what the Fablemans was going to be. And I think that's what a lot of people think from the outset that the Fablemans is trying to be. But the Fablemans is not really the movie you go to for, like, heartstring emotional devastation. It didn't do what, like, After Sun did for me, right? And... I think the Fablemans is up to something a little more interesting than that, and a little bit more, you know, slightly even darker than that a little bit, right? With, like, the relationship that, you know, the young character has with his mom. And I think even you could walk out of this Oscar season and just be like, 
he really didn't make him cry enough. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it would and that's kind of wild to think about. It's just like if he's not going to make them, he's not going to pull on their heartstrings with the Fablemans. You know. So you're saying if Fablemans was maybe a more uh, a less complex or a cheaper uh, emotional movie, it uh, would have a better chance. I think there are people who walk into Fablemans expecting a. Uh, kind of expecting the movie that the trailer is selling them on which is the magic of the magic of the cinema uh you know saved this boy from from uh, <laughs> the, uh you know family strife or whatever and that's not this movie this movie is about a kid's complicated relationship with his mom and his dad and and the way that like his talent for movie making complicates that and it's I don't know. I really like the Fablemans. I don't know. <laughs> I feel it's, it's <laughs> but weird. it did well. It did well. It's it's yes. had a good week. All right. Uh, minus Michelle Williams not showing up at SAG. We won't jump to SAG yet. What else? Uh, what else do you have about the Globes in relation to the game? In relation to the game, I think. I mean, in relation to the game, and in relation to the long run Oscar thing, I think we were on the cusp of the RRR train really hitting and then it losing to Argentina 1985 in best non-English language film is going to have a longer tail on it that I think people, this is going to be my weird, like I'm not a crackpot theory in years to come is like (laughs) Argentina 1985 swung the at the golden globes, the the Hollywood foreign press going for Argentina 1985 swung the course of the Oscar race in ways that you would not imagine. Because I feel like if RRR wins that award and gets up on the stage and has this big moment and gets the whole, you know, room enthused for it. And I think that, goes a long way towards enhancing its chances at a Best Picture nomination, a Best Director nomination, and and wins at the Oscars that now I feel like, I think it still has a shot to get a Best Picture nomination. I think it has an outside I shot don't. at a Best Director nomination, but I think it's a lot shakier, and I don't... I You were on the group chat with me and Katie. We're like, at the beginning of that night, I was like, I'm calling it right now, RRR is winning Best Picture. And by the time, as soon as Argentina 1985 won that award, I'm like, well, I take that. <laughs> because I really do feel like, in that sort of like butterfly effect, you know, uh, chaos theory, fractals, uh, universe way, that that robbed RRR of the TV moment it needed to make that narrative happen. I mean, maybe, I mean, like there's a a lot of hand wringing of things like falling out of best picture. Maybe it has a better best picture chance than I'm thinking. I kind of think that it's going to be down to that best original song category and it's going to win it quite easily and, you know, give us the best moment of the entire ceremony when they perform it. Right. Um, But I do think think the ceiling was higher. I think the ceiling was potentially higher. So. It probably had to do better on those short lists. Um, and my last thing about the the Golden Globes, and this takes us into sad news, current events uh, territory, is Austin Butler really is winning Best Actor. And one hundred percent. I was a little bit like, well, it's up in the air. It's Butler. It's Farrell. It's it's um, Brendan Fraser. Whatever. And now between the Golden Globes. And now the sad, horrible news of uh, Lisa Lisa Marie Presley's untimely death. Not to be uh, cynical, but to be cynical. You know what I well, mean? Well, like, I, I don't even think you need to be cynical about it. I thought it was his before that unfortunately I agree. happened. I agree. Um, 
I mean, Colin Farrell has already, I mean, it was Great Globe speech, but he's given Great Globe speeches before, uh-huh. and Banshees of Sharon has other avenues to win for yeah. people's love for that movie to go around. I don't think it's out of the running for Best Picture. Um, or Best Supporting Actress, actually. I think Supporting I, Actress we is could, so I, up in I, the air. Okay, since you mentioned the group chat, the two threads that I've been on, I feel like this season, yes. is that we have high potential for a Marsha Gay Harden situation and supporting actress to yes. happen this year. Yes, I, think and I agree that, with you there. Um, the nomination leader is going to be all quiet on the Western okay, front. Okay, I'm glad you remembered to bring this up because I would have forgotten it. This is, I think, your it's wildest... It's either going to lead or it's going to tie to lead. This is, okay, you're, you're, you're giving yourself an out and I'm still going to take it because here's this is your wildest take that you've had in quite a while and I'm willing to put a bet on this. I think, I absolutely do not <laughs> think All Quiet on the Western Front is going to be even tied for nomination leader. I, I will either take everything everywhere all at once or just give, I'll take the no on that. <laughs> Whatever, however you want to craft this bet, I want to get something on the books. Uh, how about if it happens, I don't have to pay you anything for the okay. Colin Farrell bet? Yeah, uh, yes, we'll do. Okay. We'll do it. Yeah, we'll do a, a fifty dollar bet. Yes, okay. An, an, I got an immune. I got some type of. Wait, so idol. what do I get if I win? Though, is it double or nothing? No. Okay, so it's all upside for you and no upside. Listen, for me. this is this is one of those very hyper specific idols on Survivor that don't really wow. ever amount to anything. Wow. But okay. I can nullify. The bet is what I think it is. Wow. Well, that's that is a fool's bet for me then, because it is it offers me absolutely no upside. I need to get something out of this. Uh, bragging rights. You you love to have. Bragging I do rights. love bragging rights. You that's love true. telling me I'm wrong. That's true. I do love bragging <laughs> rights. All right, I'll take it for bragging rights. I am saying all, right. all quiet on the Western Front is not going to be the nomination leader. Not even in a tie. Absolutely not. I mean, I do think this is risky because I even went and looked and like, I don't post predictions. It's like uh, everybody posts predictions on Twitter and stuff. What's the point? Uh, But uh, I did come up with either a scenario for uh, All Quiet to be the leader or tie with everything all at once. But then I have like three movies with like eight nominations. Everything everywhere all at once is going to get at least three acting nominations. And, and, that's three that it's starting in the column that All Quiet is not going to get. I, I Take another look at those short lists. I think the only one I have a question of whether it gets through of the things that it was shortlisted for is original score. All right. I still think I, I I think I'm winning this one, and I think I'm winning this one handily. We'll see how. I'm goes. also on the thread of it's getting a best director nomination, but the hang up being nobody knows that director's name. I think it could get a Best Director nomination. I I definitely think, and I think it could get a Best Picture nomination. I think it could get those two. But I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is also going to get those two. So uh, I still I'm still holding fast to my prediction. But we'll we'll we've it's got cer- that. I think books. it's certainly getting a Best Picture nomination, especially because it performs so well on all those short lists. Everybody in all those branches is going to watch it. I don't understand why, but everybody seems to love this movie when they watch it. It is there now the Netflix. The Netflix horse in the race. Like Glass yep. Onion has now been shoved aside, and it is now their number one priority. Which is to the point where I even wonder if a few weeks ago some nominations I would have predicted for Pinocchio, it's not going to get those. 
Interesting, because Netflix has has moved their uh, like adapted screenplay. I mean, yeah, I don't is Netflix see going to get Pinocchio and All Quiet in there. Like, yeah. All right, I want to move on to the Screen Actors Guild Awards though, because yeah. those nominations happened. The big sort of surprising news was that Michelle Williams was not nominated for Best Actress. We do see this every year. A big right. contender who you feel like is probably running like at worst second or third gets snubbed from a acting category and you're like oh no is this does this mean trouble and almost always it doesn't mean trouble almost always somebody i'm trying to think who was the person last year who got uh who got left off of the list i forget i feel like this thing you're describing is more common in supporting categories than lead categories I think that's true, but even so, I think even still, like, uh, Kristen Stewart was not nominated for SAG last year. And that got everybody right. thinking, oh, no, she's not going to get nominated for for Oscar. The, you know, the gravy train is over, whatever. And she, you know, bounced back. And I think it's stuff like that, where it's people who you feel like are sort of safely ensconced, and then the SAG nomination doesn't happen. And you're like, oh, no, like, this is, this is a lot more... <laughs> um, tenuous then you look at like supporting actress last year they nom- sag nominated katrina balf kate blanchett for nightmare alley ruth nega for passing none of them got oscar nominations, so they went a full right. two for five there so a sag snub isn't the end of the world for people like michelle williams for people like um who else is is sort of i guess the women talking uh uh Contenders Jesse Buckley and Claire Foy, even though I think they're both in in on real shaky ground in general. Um, yeah, I don't know. The thing I wanna... they're also more likely to throw you know the surprise nomination to something like Adam Sandler and Hustle for it yeah. to just really maybe not have a chance at Oscar. Yeah. Oh, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the Adam Sandler thing is gonna is gonna go anywhere. I will I say, thinking about the Adam Sandler thing this week, that I'm like the Adam Sandler Oscar nomination train is just going to take like thirty years in the oven. Yeah, it's <laughs> but gonna, it'll it will happen. eventually it happen. It definitely will happen, and he probably. I think there's a decent chance that before it, this is all over on this mortal coil, Adam Sandler will have an Oscar an Oscar in his hand for acting. Um, I mean, if, if his nomination happens for Hustle, it's going to be it the well, wildest thing. I will but say, it, I, I say it, it won't, won't, but like Best Actor, that fifth Best Actor slot is wide open. And it's... But SAG is, you know... Way wider membership, way more populous membership. Oh, now that it's SAG AFTRA, you have like TikTokers. Uh, oh God, I can't talk about the TikTokers. And... I can't do it. I'll get so mad. I'll get too mad. <laughs> I will say, like, SAG has been historically way better for Netflix movies, just in general. You know yeah. what I mean? Just like this is a consistent thing. So, like, which the, is a bad sign for Glass Onion. All the surprise nominees at SAG this year were Adam Sandler, Eddie Redmayne, and Anna de Armas. All three of them are Netflix contenders. So, like, that's not a surprise to me. Like, they 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 do well with SAG because their availability is so widespread, and the SAG membership is way more cross-continental than you think it is like it's you know that's that membership is not just Mm -hmm. in in los angeles and new york and so uh i think that's a big reason i think eddie redmayne i think is less of a surprise eddie redmayne has really been getting out there for that movie no one watched Um, it's true 
I and still I think, think it's going to be an Oscar nomination. You said he's going to Jared Leto. I think he's going to. What was I the disagree. name of that movie that I like steadfastly cannot re- recall its its title? The Good Nurse. No, which I kept calling the Good Doctor until I saw it. No, the the Jared Leto uh, Rami Malek movie. Oh, um, 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 the little things. The little things, right? Um, yeah, I think that's my closest comparison. I think my closest comparison to Anna de Armas and Blonde is Nicole Kidman in The Paperboy. In that, like, ultimately, I think the Oscar A movie voters that everyone hates. are yeah. just going to be like, like, no, thank you. I I kind of disagree. I feel like the two things that I don't want to happen that the SAG nomination kind of confirmed for me are probably going to happen are Ana de Armas and Hong Chao. I think Hong Chao definitely holds a, a good chance. I'm now worried about this uh, PGA nomination for The Whale, but we'll talk about that next week. I want to talk right. about uh, the SAG Ensemble nominations because it's Babylon, Banshees of Inisherin, Everything Everywhere, The Fablemans, Women Talking. I think I've been sort of defaulting to the idea that, well, of course, Everything Everywhere All at Once is going to win. But here's what I want to float to you is I went through the last 10 years of the SAG Awards. The, The winner for Ensemble is almost never the movie with the most individual acting nominations i've i've done this tap before too you remember the parasite year i was all in on uh sag being the key to everything well and it's only happened in the last 10 years for three billboards and birdman like you look at like even when american hustle won american hustle only had one acting nomination in the and it was amy adams it was not amy adams it was jennifer lawrence but like amy adams christian bale and bradley cooper who were all oscar nominated for that movie none of them were sag nominated for that movie so like what a weird sag year but like you look at like coda winning last year only one nomination when black panther won it had zero acting nominations when parasite won it had zero acting nominations when argo won it had one acting nominations spotlight one acting nomination hidden uh, figures one acting nomination so i'm not saying that means everything everywhere all at once isn't going to get nominated but it has four acting nominations which is like Actually, so does Banshees of Inisherin. So the two of those are almost like tilting the scales in that way. Do you think you don't that... think Banshees of Inisherin is going to pull a sideways? <laughs> well, the thing about Banshees of Inisherin is their entire uh, ensemble nomination is just the four individual performers who were nominated individually. Do you know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I that... think by your logic, you're saying it's the Fablemans to probably take SAG Ensemble? I'm saying don't count the Fablemans out just because Banshees and Everything Everywhere have such a, you know, such a seemingly overwhelming advantage. It's not maybe the advantage that people think. Well, you know I would be very happy to see Jeannie Berlin with a trophy in her hand. 100%. Um, uh, although, justice for Robin Bartlett, who... Uh, Apparently not all grandmas, just just one <laughs> in the Fablemans gets nominated, but okay. Also, David Lynch being part of that ensemble win would be amazing. I am kind of rooting for the Fablemans. I do. It, it's it's maybe Fablemans is a top ten movie. I don't have it as high as Everything Everywhere and Banshees, but I am sort of rooting for it now because it is a little bit of an underdog for me. And I think people it would get my vote in this category. People have been the people who have been mean to it have been mean to it in a way that I think is unfair. Anyway, um. 
We've been talking for 20 minutes. We should probably stop. <laughs> um, but... DGA, though. DGA, DGA, DGA. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, I think Joseph Kaczynski uh, getting nominated for Top Gun Maverick is uh, a telling thing, and I think it could repeat itself at the Oscars. I think it means nothing. I think it means something. DGA is incredibly populist. It is not just... Uh, it is a much wider membership than the Academy Directors branch. I think it means nothing. If I if I throw in my theory that Todd Field is going to get snubbed for the Oscar in the year All Quiet on the Western Front thing, would you give me odds? Would you give me uh, monetary odds? If I, I win both of those. If I win both I think of you those. are up a creek about Todd Field not getting nominated for an Oscar, so sure. <laughs> All right. Okay. How much? 20 Will months. I give you money? If I get if I win the All Quiet on the Western Front and the Todd Field as a like a as a pair. If I win both if I win both of those. I will me- give another fifty dollars to a charity of your choice, okay. but not to you. Love it. I absolutely love it. All right. We'll do also, that. Uh, DGA, the first, t- the first time feature uh, director uh, nominations, loved those, especially for Alice Diop. It's about time that Alice Diop showed up in uh, first time feature like prizes. Yeah, Saint Omer has been um, not doing as well as I thought it was going to do in the precursor season. I think it's been, I think those those donkeys of EO have really uh, taken the shine for the <laughs> the international feature. Uh, Awards and After year. Sun has been taking the debut feature prizes, which and I like both of those movies, but like After Sun's my best movie of the year, so like that's I'm not going to complain about that. Charlotte Wells, uh, highly deserving, but yes, good good nominations for the first. Time I always want to see variety in those winners in that category. I do, unless it's my favorite movie of the year. Then I just want my favorite movie <laughs> of the year to win everything. <laughs> All right, um, one last time though, uh, before we go back to that old man and his gun. Uh, you should go to moviegame.vulture.com and click the link to a landing page there where you can get complete rules and uh, lists of what's upcoming awards-wise. And then you can look at the leaderboard and see where you sit. I am currently in the 200s, which uh, that's exactly where I want to be. I'm ready to strike. Watch out top 10. I don't know. Um, I'm at 669, three ranking nice. spots away from me being able to say, Hail Satan. There you go. Well, that's what I want for you. I want you to go up those three spots. All right. Uh, uh, Chris, thank you for uh, this update. And we will go back to Robert Redford. I'm not talking about making a living. I'm just oh. talking about living. But yeah, back to uh, Old Man and the Gun. There's just like so much good craft in this movie. So much good care. There's a scene I I normally... As you know, if you listen to this podcast, I don't talk about the technical aspects of filmmaking a lot, a lot of the times, because I don't really, I don't trust my um, observations of them. I didn't go to film school. I didn't really, I haven't studied film. I'm not good at that kind of stuff. You're better at the, you're better at it than I am, though. You like, you, you are better at noticing things like aspect ratios and, and filming styles and stuff like that. You just, you are, you are. Um, But I, so I like. I say that only in that, like, I rarely make notes about things like filmmaking style. And yet there is a whip pan montage in this thing while Casey Affleck's character is sort of putting the case together and, and <laughs> getting, like, getting his information on Redford that made me write it down because I fucking love a whip pan montage. Like, for as much as I have, like, complicated Paul Thomas Anderson feelings, like, one of the things that I love best is, like, he's made that thing a part of his style. You think about, like, the Magnolia 
a whip pan montage when you meet all the different characters. Mm-hmm. You think about the scene at Jack Horner's house or whatever in Boogie Nights, and I don't know. <laughs> I, Mary Margulies with a shotgun. Basically, yeah. So, like, I, I may not know very much about uh, how to uh, put a, a movie together from a series of shots, but, like, I fucking love a whip pan montage. So, uh, love to David Lowry. David Lowry is so great at montages. Like, we've talked about They're Barry so Jenkins energetic. Being, There's like, so the much energy the in the movie. Other shows. Yeah. But um, David Lowry is actually really good. I mean, like, most of at least maybe the back half of a ghost story is just montage yeah the montage at the end of this movie which like you could maybe say is the climax of the movie where you see all of his previous jailbreaks mm. is so good <laughs> um, that that incorporates um a scene from oh and i wrote this down too uh this a redford movie that he had done with marlon brando and jane fonda as you can hear my pages, uh, The Chase, 1966 is The Chase, which, okay, get this, The Chase, which I had never really heard about before, um, even though it's, like, not a big surprise that, like, I, I there's a movie from the 60s that I maybe um, hadn't heard of, directed by Arthur Penn, script by Lillian Hellman, based on a Horton Foote novel, starring Marlon Brando, Jane Fonda, Robert Redford, and then Robert Duvall also has, like, a very small role in it, like, that's fucking stacked. Like the sixties are so fucking stacked with talent. It's insane. Um, but yeah, they pulled a scene, a, a scene, a little clip from that to, uh, add to the montage. And again, I'm going to be a broken record about this, like totally contributes to this idea of we're watching a movie about as much about a Robert Redford character as we are about a person who, you know, robbed banks. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I, I love that conceit. I think it's so fun. And again, for a 93 minute movie, like this thing just trucks along. You get a lot of movie out of it. You get some bang for your buck. That is for sure. Yeah. Can we talk about my favorite scene in the movie? Yes. I can't get, I can't get too far into this episode without talking about the scene. Which one? I mean, like watch this movie and you are convinced that the most romantic thing you can do is steal a bracelet together. Oh Yes. The 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 jewelry shopping scene yes. where it's like yeah. he he basically gets her to like walk out while wearing this bangle from a jewelry store in a mall. Yeah. And the performance that Sissy Spacek gives while they're walking away and she is figuring out what's happening and then she is charmed by it and maybe turned on a little bit. Yeah. And then the guilt that kind of goes across her face, not like yep oh, I've done such a horrible thing, but like, no, we need to be reasonable people, and they go back. It's not necessarily what she's done, it's that I'm not the kind of person who's going to steal something. Right. That's not me. Yeah. As simple as it would be for us to simply keep walking and steal this, no, we're going to go back. Yeah. But when they go back, it's and she's like fessing up and playing this game of, oh, I'm so stupid, I walked out. I'm an old lady. Yeah. It's still a part of the flirtation yep. with him yep. because she gets him to pay for it, basically, rather than just give it back to the clerk. Yes. And the performance that Sissy Spacek is giving in this scene is so yep. incredible of not just the... It feels like I don't want to be like, she's topping him, but it's like <laughs> she is, she <laughs> is like... <laughs> 
<laughs> setting forth that like if this is going to be a relationship like we're flirting yeah, with yeah. these are going to be the terms of what the relationship will be yep. this is the role that i will be playing in it and that will be the role that you are playing yep and we're going to be these type of people um, well and it's an extension a little bit of that moment in the diner where he sort of talks about in this like hypothetical in air quotes um how he would rob this diner were he to rob this diner. And after he tells her I'm a bank robber and she's kind of laughing. And she's like, like, oh, this is maybe a joke. This is, you know, you know it's a bit. It's right. it's reminiscent of, honestly, that Thelma and Louise scene where Brad Pitt sort of walks Gina Davis through how he would rob a bank and as a way of, you know, flirting, as a way of, you know, almost courtship. And of course, that one is all about this sort of like brash. Uh, youth and vitality and whatever of that Brad Pitt character. And this one, it's a different vibe because he's, you know, older and he's gentle about it. And he's not. He does still have a hairdryer holster. <laughs> right, face. right. The other scene, though, between Spacek and Redford, and you're right about the bracelet scene. I think that's the standout. But there's a scene of the two of them. She lives, her character lives on uh, this horse farm. She's, she raises mm-hmm. uh, horses. And they're sitting out there on her porch, sort of looking out on, uh, out into the, the, the pasture for the horses. And they're just having this conversation about life. And he talks about how this sort of life philosophy that he has of as long as what he's doing would be, uh, that if his 10 year old self could see the places he's going and the things that he's doing, if that 10 year old self would be happy with it, then that's what he feels like he should be doing. And it's one of those things where it's like, Oh, I know, you know what I, I've seen movies before. I've seen the lead character sort of like lay down his philosophy. And most of the time a movie will accept that at face value and just sort of have a little bit of a reverence for this person. Cause he's got an ethos, right? He's got a, he's got a, um, a code that he lives by. He's the gentleman bank robber. Um, and she pushes back on it in a way that I found like really interesting in a way that doesn't really like stand out necessarily for really listening for it. But she says like that 10 year old boy didn't know anything about time or about um, what life is essentially and essentially being like you do not have to be beholden to what would this 10 year old version of myself uh approve of and it's just a really like kind of lovely notion about um getting older and about you know where these characters are now towards the closer towards the ends of their lives and um it's just it allows her character to engage with him in a way that that shows off that she's not just a dupe here you know what i mean that Mm -hmm. she's not just being sort of like taken for a ride that she has insight she's you know she sees into him better than maybe uh he's even you know prepared to to hear about it's i don't know i really like that little moment good script moment but also like incredibly well acted by spacek Mm mm-hmm I mean, that's partly why I think this movie works is because lesser movies would make her character be, you know, just love interest. But Mm -hmm. there's so much that makes her a full character and an interesting character and someone we like seeing opposite this this bank robber. And also, like, as much as he is not 
like the legend of him is not reduced to yeah. the type of stereotype things. I think she never really responds in a way that we would expect her to, or the way that movie rules say that she should be yeah. responding. Yeah. It's always much more complicated and graceful yeah. than you would expect her to react. Yep. I will also say it's it's almost by definition the less interesting parts of the movie, but like I like the Casey Affleck stuff in this movie too. I think he's uh really good as the detective and like watching him kind of again put together this patchwork of stories about Forrest is mm-hmm. really interesting. I don't think that performance calls a ton of attention to itself, which I think is good. I don't think he I think sometimes I think the movie is also really smart about how much of that story the movie needs to be effective and doesn't Yeah. There I I think it's a pretty lean part of the movie that like all of the Redford stuff feels like it's, you know, breezy and kind of right. going through the thing, uh, the story at its own pace, but the the Affleck stuff is very economical. Well, and and in that economy, gets uh gets what it needs to do done, and in a way right. that like I really like the scenes with him and Tika Sumter, who plays his wife, um, Tika Sumter. I am obligated to point out a One Life to Live actress who uh, <laughs> played um, Layla Williamson. She was Renee Elise Goldsberry's on-screen sister. So Renee Elise Goldsberry is Evangeline Williamson, who's this like phenomenal, uh, hot, awesome lawyer. And her little sister eventually comes to live. But then Evangeline, um, or maybe this even happens before Layla shows up, Evangeline uh, gets put into a coma. She's at a, there's a gas, uh, a gas incident at a, at a nightclub or whatever that was like intentional. Um, and she's overcome by the gas and she's uh, in a coma. And like, that's how they wrote off <laughs> Renee Elise Goldsberry. When Renee Elise Goldsberry is like off to go do Broadway and eventually the good she's wife. She's overcome by the gas. Um, so uh, Evangeline's in a coma for like years off screen, just sort of like, She's she's comatose. They eventually I was so mad right as the show was ending. Um, they took her off life support and sort of let the character die. And I was like, no, like have her be like perpetually like maybe she can come back forever, even if the show is <laughs> over. But so then Layla eventually um Melissa Fumero from Brooklyn Nine Nine was on the show and her real life husband was also a cast member on One Life to Live. And he, David Fumero, had been dating Evangeline on screen. Like that was her like relationship when she eventually went into the coma. And then so years later, then Layla ended up, he ended up being like her, like one true love. So like she ends up dating her sister's ex. This was after, by the way, she had dated for a while. Um, a cop who turned out to be gay, who was played by Chris Evans's real life gay brother. So like Layla had a whole time. She was very fun. I really, so like <laughs> this all explains like my loyalty to Tika Sumter. So like I, I, I root for her as I root for all the One Life alums. So, uh, yeah. Soaps and So You Think You Can Dance are the true way to uh, the center of Joe Reed's heart. billion percent. Yes. Okay. Uh, but back to like the. Are you sure? Because I could keep the- telling One Life to Live stories if you want. So no kidding. <laughs> oh, we are not a One Life to Live podcast. Yes. As much as I'm sure there are several Garys that would like us to be. Um, the economy of those stories, I think. Well, also the Casey Affleck thing. I think that was a lot of people's aversion to this movie at the time in a way that I think 
people might not be today. Um, and like, he's not in the movie that much too. So it's like, you yeah. would say that to people and be like, he's barely in the movie. Yeah. Um, but the economy of what's going on, I think is so smartly used because if you just have this legend of this guy mm-hmm. and no real like contextualization of it, I think the movie's less effective or less interesting. Yeah. Because what the you think that it's a stock, you know, cop investigator role, but really what that character's purpose serves is like okay, so this legend exists, what am I going to learn from it? Because his whole investigation of Redford's character is ultimately, you know, informing what kind of father he wants to be. Yeah. And if the movie maybe doesn't go, because, like, Lizzie Moss is just in one scene of the movie. Right. The movie doesn't really investigate that much of Redford's character as an absentee dad, you know, mm-hmm. that at least feels like it's responding to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you mentioned Lizzie Moss, and this is probably our good uh, entry point into um, our six-timers conversation. Because do you like how I just, like, pass that off? I do. You? I thought that was very skillful, Christopher. Very smooth. Well done. Um, this is our sixth Elizabeth Moss movie, kind of unexpectedly, because at least half of these movies, she's in it very briefly. Um, really, we got I think... to Lizzie Moss six timers before we did a her smell episode. I know. She, well, she's she was uh, the six movies that we did. She's a lead in none of them, and she's really only a significant supporting character in two of them. But. Uh, uh, I almost like these six timers even better because it's like it's like we did the Dermot Mulroney six timers, and it's just like, hey, oh, listen. I can't wait until we get into full character actor six. John Carroll Lynch is coming. John Carroll Lynch is going to be a fun six timers. I for thought us. that already happened. No, where are we with John Carroll Lynch? Hold on. Uh, uh, I believe he might be hanging out at five. Um, hold, please. Yeah, John Carroll Lynch is is hanging out right now at five, and his next one will be a six-timer, and that will be fun times had by all. Yeah, but uh, Elizabeth Moss, uh, uh, we've done uh, six times we've done Elizabeth Moss movies, starting with Anywhere But Here, then The Missing, then Truth, which she has an actual <laughs> role of substance, uh, A Thousand Acres, Us, where she has a role of substance, and... Old Man and the Gun, which is at least a like featured, almost like a featured cameo in this. Um, she's what one of Natalie Portman's friends in Anywhere But Here, I would imagine. I think so. Yeah, she's, I imagine, one of the like children in The Missing. I don't know. Um, and she's some one of the characters' daughters in A Thousand Acres. So yeah, um, she's very young in that. Yes, movie. yes. So six movies, one Elizabeth Moss. Chris, as we do when we uh, reach six times for an actor or actress, I give you a little bit, a little quiz uh, where the answers are all one or more of those six movies. Are you ready? I am very ready. All right. Elizabeth Moss quiz engaged. Uh, which of those six movies is the longest? The Missing. By a good margin, I think. I think the yeah. only... Uh, uh, it's 137 minutes. I don't think anything else gets out of your uh, low 120s. Uh, shortest. Old Man and the Gun. Hell yeah, 93 minutes, Old Man and the Gun, bingo, bango, in and out. Um, highest domestic box office total. This is also not close. Us. Us. Yeah. I didn't realize, and we did an episode on us, and I don't think I lingered on this enough, $175 million. Like, that's... Hell 
Yeah. Maybe I like now that I'm looking at it from the sort of impoverished box office perspective, I'm like 175 million for a fully original. This is the thing about movie. Nope that like people, I feel like people were weirdly shitting on that movie for it's it made like 120 and people were like, well, I guess Jordan Peele has a dud. Come and on. it's like, are you kidding me? If we weren't in pandemic times, it would be his highest grossing movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that there's only a $50 million gap between his movies that were released in February and this movie that was released in July. I'm going like, to say this right now, and I've never been more uh, dead serious in my entire life. If there's anybody out there listening who has or will have an Oscar ballot in their hand, nope for best picture. Like, just fucking do it. It just deserves it. do it. Just do it. Do it. All right. Uh, I don't know if this comes out during the voting period. I don't care. Well, if it does. It doesn't come out after the voting period. Like, stick a fucking pin in it. You know what I mean? Just, like, uh, write yourself a post I think it. Nope will be an Oscar nominee. For Best Picture? It's on the visual, it's on the visual effects shortlist. It will I be an Oscar nominee, but I mean, it deserves to be a Best Picture nominee. Make right. it fucking happen. Right, 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 right. Uh, we agree. It's in both of our top ten. <laughs> lowest domestic box office total of those six movies. Uh, the Old Man of the Gun. No. Oh. Um, it outgrossed at least one. Oh, truth. 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 2.5 yeah. million for truth. Uh, the highest Rotten Tomato score is actually a tie between two oh, movies. I, I would imagine it's Us and the Old Man and the Gun. Correct. Us and the Old Man and the Gun, both 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, what's the- Actually, I'm a little surprised that Us is that high because some people really don't like that movie. But I think that kind of seeped out a little bit later. I think the initial reaction to Us was very positive. Right. Uh, lowest Rotten Tomatoes. The Missing? Nope. Thousand Acres. Thousand Acres, 24%. Okay. Which is, like, I remember that movie being not well-reviewed, but 24% is... Although I feel like because of older movies is working with fewer reviews, right. the extremes are uh, easier to have. A 24% then is like a 55% now. Right. Yeah, you gotta be really, really bad to get a 24% now. You've gotta be, like, shockingly bad. Um, you gotta be Morbius. Well, Morbius... 15 um but yeah uh which movie shares a cinematographer with everest everest which i guess is the next katie rich movie apparently Um, we've 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 laid it down yeah uh okay so who isn't that movie directed by like timur balcazar what hold on i'll look up are you thinking of timur bekmambatov yes bekmambatov I don't think it is. Um, it is directed by Baltazar Kormakur. Ah. <laughs> different really need different director another... whose name sounds like he's a vampire. But yes. Um, you really need to do another spelling beat, which if we ever are if we ever gather again live yeah. shows, I've pitched to you it should be like a game show and we will do a spelling bee at yeah. it. Um, you would have had so much fun at the spelling bees that we did at, at uh Theology. I would want to be announcing it with you. Uh, uh, I don't want to play. I want to fuck with people. Well, I would. I, okay. <laughs> Griffin Griffin Newman doing the the sample sentences for the spelling bee was like half of the fun of that thing. He was so much oh, okay. fun. It was. Uh, God bless um, you, Griffin. All right, next. We could all three up come up with something. Is it yeah. the missing? Uh, it is the missing. Salvatore. Those Totino. are at least the two most similar type. Of movies. Yep, Salvatore. Who's Totino. the cinematographer? Like Robert Richardson. Salvatore Totino. Great. 
of of pizza rolls fame. Let's just say maybe let's let's put that fiction out there. Salvatore Totino did the cinematography for The Missing and then invented pizza rolls. Um, uh, cinematography is his hide hustle. Yes, side hustle. exactly. Which movie shares a cinematographer with The Silence of the Lambs? Uh, that is Tak Fujimoto. Which I th- did Tak Fujimoto shoot us? No, no. Um, did Tak Fujimoto shoot a thousand acres? No. Um, anywhere but here. Yes, Tak Fujimoto, the shot anywhere but here, which is very. I guess it makes like I forget that that movie was directed by Wayne Wang, who is like an auteur of of some uh distinction. So like, it's not a shocker that like Tak Fujimoto and then like Danny Elfman does the score and like, but anywhere but here does somewhat seem like a little bit of a sitcommy movie, a little bit. Um, anyway, and I do like it, but yes. Which three movies were Golden Globe nominated for acting? Oh, okay. Um, Thousand Acres. Yes, Jessica Lange. Which one? Did, no, Us was not, because I think Lupita was not nominated for that, but she got nominated at SAG. Old Man and the Gun, obviously. Correct, Robert Redford. And Anywhere But Here? Correct. Natalie Portman was nominated for Anywhere But Here. Um, which film was released in Aries season? <laughs> so March, April. That is... Well, Us is February. Is it A Thousand Acres? No. Is it Us? Us is March. Us was late March. All other movies on this list were were autumn movies, were September through okay. November. Uh, which movie played the Berlin Film Festival in the year after it was released in the United States? The Missing. The Missing, correct. Which two movies feature stars of Annihilation? <laughs> Anywhere but here. Yes, Natalie Portman. And... um, Okay, so... Tessa Thompson, Gina Rodriguez, um, Oscar Isaac, Jennifer Jason Lee, A Thousand Acres. A Thousand Acres, Jennifer Jason Lee, very good. Uh, insert Annihilation uh, uh, sound drop. Annihilation. Which two movies feature stars of Black Klansmen? Uh, Old Man and the Gun. Old Man and the Gun, which features actually two different actors from Black Klansmen, because it's John David Washington and also Isaiah Whitlock Jr. is also yes. In both. Oh, by the way, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. apparently plays the same character as he plays in Pete's Dragon in this movie. So this movie exists in a universe where dragons are real. He does that a lot because isn't his character in Twenty Fifth Hour plausibly his, if not his character from The Wire, but like pretty much like sort of his character from the wire i feel like there's there's connections in in his isaiah whitlock jr legend anyway um who else is in black clansman it's got to be a character actor um is it a thousand acres it's not a thousand acres uh it's not tim heidecker is it is it us not tim heidecker Although that's He's not a bad guy. Conceivable to play a hundred percent, hundred percent. No offense to Tim um, Heidecker, but like, yeah, we could see it. Oh no, it's Topher Grace. It's Truth. It is Topher Grace who plays David Duke in uh, Black Klansman. Is in Truth. Yes. Which is the only one of those six movies not to be based on a book? Us. Us. 
uh, fully original screenplay, Us, which was the only one of those movies based on a book written by the namesake of a Simpsons character. <laughs> okay. Um, the Missing? Not The Missing. A Thousand Acres. No, that's Jane Smiley, I believe, is her name. Oh my god. Anywhere but here. Anywhere but here, based on a book written by Mona Simpson, which is the name of Homer's mother in The Simpsons. Oh, got it, got it, got it. All right, which movie got exactly three Saturn Awards nominations? Us? No, Us had... Probably a bunch. Eight Saturn nominations. The Missing, nominated in... Wait, I've got this. Uh, best action adventure thriller film, best actress, and best performance by a younger actor. That was for Jenna Boyd. Which movie released the same weekend as Goosebumps? That's like October. Old Man and the Gun? No. Okay. Really? Yeah. Truth? Truth. Goosebumps 2015. Wow, Goosebumps is older than I thought. That's why I asked the question. I thought it was a little <laughs> bit of a news track. Which movie released the same weekend as the Tiffany Haddish comedy Night School? Old Man and the Gun. That's Old Man and the Gun. Yes. Yeah. Had you made note of that when you looked at its uh, box office? Yeah, I remember being like, oh, Night School. <laughs> yeah, we've all re- we all remember Night School, don't we? But, yeah. Which movie released the same weekend as The Myth of Fingerprints? Um, Anywhere but here. No. A uh, Thousand Acres. Thousand Acres. Have you ever seen The Myth of Fingerprints? I have. The movie Not where famously movie. Bart Freundlich met Julianne Moore, and that's where their uh, whirlwind romance and marriage began. No, I've never seen The Myth of Fingerprints. So I've, It's on my list of... Uh, I want to do a movie-watching project where I watch all of the late 90s The Blank of Blank movies. The Weight of Water, <laughs> The Myth of Fingerprints. Uh, uh, there's a lot of them. Um, uh Stay tuned. I'll, I'll do a letterbox list. Which movie was, in Peter Travers' Rolling Stone review, compared unfavorably to The Slums of Beverly Hills? Anywhere but here. Anywhere but here. Yes, correct. Of which film did Janet Maslin of the New York Times say, think obsessive-compulsive Lady Macbeth or Ophelia with an eating disorder, and you have an idea of just how simplistic that seems? A Thousand Acres. A Thousand Acres, famously based on King Lear. Um, which film did the Los Angeles Times' Kenneth Turan call a puckish film with a wistful quality, a gently comic end-of-the-line adventure about doing what you love, the passage of time, and the things that might have been? The Old Man and the Gun. The Old Man and the Gun. Congratulations, you have passed the Elizabeth Moss six-timers quiz. Well done, Chris. Thank that's you. a good. It's a good quote from Turan. I, that's uh, that's why I wanted to end on it. Like that's he's not wrong. He's not wrong. Very uh, very well put. Do we want to talk about the National Board of Review, Chris? Okay, so this movie made the National Board of Review's top ten uh, best independent movies because it's a searchlight joint, which is normally a list that does not yield. I would say the most interesting options. Why know? do you and think that is? Why do you think their their uh, independent movie list isn't really very good? I don't think their taste is that adventurous. <laughs> I want to look up what there was there's uh, were for this year. What their top ten was this year. This year it was Armageddon Time, which I like, Emily the Criminal, which I like, Eternal Daughter, which is your number one movie of the year, 
Yes. Um, funny pages, which I was sort of underwhelmed by after the uh, hearing good things about it. The Inspection, which uh, I liked and you really liked. Living, which I liked and you really liked. A Love Song, uh, Dale Dickey, Supremacy. Nanny, the uh, su- the Sundance Award winner. To Leslie, which is the Andrea Riseborough Surprise Independent Spirit Award nominee that I hadn't heard mm-hmm. of until the Independent Spirit Award nominations. And then The Wonder, which is the Florence Pugh movie that we didn't really love when we saw it at TIFF. That's not a bad list, I will say. It's not a bad list, but like even some of those feel like you might be fudging it a little bit. They're not the digging wonder, I be- incredibly huh? deep is what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? They're not. No, yeah. no. The year that Old Man and the Gun is on that top ten, it does feel like... It feels like half of that and half not. List, of like, list it off. Okay, here's the list. Lean on Pete, Leave No Trace, Menasha, Mid-90s, Searching, Sorry to Bother You, The Death of Stalin, Old Man and the Gun, The Rider, We the Animals, and You Were Never Really Here. I think something like mid-90s and searching being on there are kind of what you raise your eyebrow with. Yeah. Because, like, People really liked played... searching. But, yeah, searching I saw in a, like, in a multiplex. I saw it at, like, a Regal Cinemas. I mean, they made it on the cheap, but, like, that yeah. was a movie released by Sony. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, but, like, what I'm saying is, like, something like Menasha, which is a great movie that nobody saw... That like they they were the only ones riding hard for Menasha. Yeah, We the Animals was great, and I feel like I that loved was a movie We that the was Animals by yeah. a lot of queer critics, and like couldn't you just couldn't get other people to watch it? And yeah, I I believe that was released by the Orchard Rest in Peace. Yeah, I think that was the Orchard. Um, did you know that the guy who directed We the Animals directed that directed Adam Sandler the movie? Adam Sandler basketball movie Hustle? that I never watched. I same, but like that's surprising to me. It makes it less surprising that people thought Hustle was good though, because We the Animals is a right. really good movie. So like, uh, yeah. that's uh, I, I was so excited Jeremiah to see Zagar. that director's next movie, and then I was like, I don't want to see that. Yeah, though. well, Jeremiah um, Zagar make another movie, uh, and we will uh, we'll see that one. Not about sports. <laughs> But even like I will watch a sports movie. I just don't love an Adam Sandler movie. That's fine. Right. I mean, like I, I suppose you know, Old Man and the Gun seems like maybe the more quintessential choice for them to make here. But it does feel like a lot of these movies they selected were along the lines of advocating for smaller movies that really didn't get much mention throughout the rest of the season. Yeah. Which, like, how are they going to know that Menasha is not going to get? you know, attention or right. Leon Pete is not going to get attention. I will say they come out first, but given um, that almost as a caveat, like you're, you're not wrong about that. They could, I think the independent spirit awards, at least in their nominations often go deeper uh, in terms of digging out movies that maybe you haven't heard of, but like just in terms right. of quality um, and a lot of this is the NBR sort of casting as wide a net as possible, which is like their thing. That's the thing that they do. And, and I celebrate them for that. Um, but like, I loved Death of Stalin. Lean on Pete's a really good movie. I loved Leave No Trace. I loved The Rider. Loved uh, We the Animals. Really liked Sorry to Bother You. I think I was like more positive on Sorry to Bother You than a lot of other people were. Um, and then I uh, don't ever want to think about You Were Never Really Here. <laughs> Because it was so unpleasant. You were never really here. I think is a really good movie, but it's I think not li- not even yeah. close to being Lynn Ramsey's best movie. Like, and then mid nineties, I never saw. 
It was the other one. Uh, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is that the kid from um, something else, though, that I've seen? Right? I think it's the kid from Killing of a Sacred Deer. There it is. Right. All right. If I'm remembering correctly. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. Um, but that's really... The Old Man and the Gun doesn't really show up a ton in award season beyond that, and then the the Redford nomination at the Golden Globes. So who were the other nominees that year? Remind me. Uh, he's nominated in Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, up against Christian Bale, who wins for Vice. Boo. I totally forgot that Christian Bale won, even though it, like, it makes total sense that he did. It makes but... absolute sense. Um Lin-Manuel Miranda was nominated for Mary Poppins Returns, also a nomination that makes total sense. Viggo Mortensen <laughs> nominated in uh, for Green Book, which I forgot they ran Green Book in a comedy, which, like, yeah. for what that movie's attempting to do, I don't disagree, so... Right. It's well. a little surprising, actually, that Vigo doesn't beat out Bale, even though Bale is doing that, like, classic, like, mimicking a, a famous person thing, so, like, it's not surprising. Right. But, like, right. Green Book... Was had the better trajectory that year, and I think it wins the Golden Globe for best musical or comedy. It does. Um, and the fifth nominee movie that we had forgotten the second it left theaters, and I think I did see it in a theater though. This movie, it, well, it, it was shortlisted for makeup. Yes, but I don't think was nominated. Is Stan and Ollie not a bad movie? I don't think it's something that I would like put on my year-end list but like i remember thinking like yeah not a bad movie uh good for john c Riley. john c Riley and steve coogan right that was the yes the pairing? yes yeah. i mean robert redford should have walked away with this globe i think so i absolutely think so and also again we talked to uh, we referred a little bit earlier in the podcast to like he has this amazing star power and yet for somebody with this kind of incredible star power, you would think that he would have been He's not more, exactly a celebrated actor. More lauded, He's, right? He got the Oscar for directing Ordinary People. Did he get any other directing nominations? Was he nominated for directing Quiz, Quiz show? show? He was okay. Quiz Show. Quiz Show's great. Um, I love Quiz Show. His only acting nomination was for The Sting, famously, yes, which is wild. I mean, he in that way he's. It's not a one-to-one to Harrison Ford, but Harrison Ford is also, because, you know, obviously Robert Redford has a directing Oscar. Yeah. But uh, Harrison Ford only has his one nomination for Witness, which is something I don't think people always remember. But even I don't, I have to be reminded that Robert Redford was only nominated once for acting. And I think that that may be you, I, I almost want to say it speaks to why his late career movies that feel like, you know, could be a thing like this, all is lost, is all lost, um, right? don't eventually happen for him. But it feels like these movies are sold as him being one of our most celebrated actors or right. one of our most beloved actors. And while I think that's true for audiences, it doesn't seem to be true for the industry well you even look at the golden globes which i just checked in this awards tab because i'm like surely the golden globes the star fuckers that they are uh 
would have nominated a big movie star like Robert Redford more. And really, most of his nominations there are for directing. He's been nominated for directing four times at the Globes for Ordinary People, A River Runs Through It, Quiz Show, and The Horse Whisperer, but has only been nominated for acting really twice for All is Lost and Old Man and the Gun, uh, and is a was one most promising newcomer for Inside Daisy Clover in 1965. But like, not even nominated for The Sting at the Globes, not nominated for... Look at all of these movies that had either are well-regarded or had awards attention or both in his career, like Barefoot in the Park, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, um, The Sting, obviously, but like The Way We Were, you know what I mean? How is that mm-hmm. not a Golden Globe That's nomination? That's Best Picture nominee, right? Right, I'm pretty sure. Streisand yeah. was nominated for that, I think. All the President's Men, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then The Natural, which gets nominated for Glenn Close for essentially standing in the middle distance, but not for Robert Redford. <laughs> Out of Africa, Best Picture winner. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, I feel like, why do you have a Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy category if not to nominate Robert Redford in Sneakers, I ask you? Um, (laughs) Tremendous. Uh, You know what I mean? There are things that, like, you know, I don't think his performance in Up Close and Personal is Oscar-worthy, but, like, weird that that didn't get an Oscar nomination, or a Golden Globe nomination, rather. Um, And then you sort of look into sort of, like, his later stuff, and it's a lot of, like you know, uh, Truth or Pete's Dragon, where it's like you could see a world in which a supporting campaign could have been sort of crafted around beloved actor Robert Redford. But that's never really been his vibe. And I wonder if... And he's also such an industry guy. But his Mm -hmm. industry guy-ness is very much this idea of independent film, right? He moved out to Park City. He created the Sundance Institute, all this sort of thing. And maybe... It's as just basic as like he doesn't do the Hollywood thing as much as you would expect him to. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Given his stature. That I mean, that seems more likely than I think the other thing that I've seen bandied about by him is that he's was seen as a pretty boy actor and well just in his a early career I could definitely see really right. talented. But like that's if it's true of Robert Redford, it's interesting that it's not true of other people like Warren Beatty. Like Warren Beatty has four mm-hmm. acting nominations, never won for acting, but but Warren Beatty you know. hustles. You know what I mean? And I yeah, I bet you yeah. that like plays a part in it. Um, Warren Beatty threatened people within an inch of their life, right? For his nominations, but like you like you you saw even a little bit about it, and you and I both watched and very much loved the last movie stars. We're talking about how like Newman and that that series talked a lot about the ways in which Newman sort of saw himself as lesser than uh, to a certain degree to other people. But in the dynamic with Newman and Redford in all the movies that, you know, they were in together and, and whatnot, that Newman was seen as the actor. He had done theater. He had done, you know, the actor studio and all this sort of stuff. And Redford was seen as the pretty movie star. And, Mm -hmm. but like, yeah, it, it, even even under that, under the guise of that, it's still a little strange, especially because, okay, this is a comparison I didn't think I was going to make until just now as it's about to trip outside my mouth. Is it not a little bit Ben Affleck-esque in terms of 
Well, Ben Affleck, though, was snubbed for the directing nomination for Argo. But, like, that almost seems ben like Affleck an accident. also had a reputation for being an asshole that I don't know if Robert Redford ever no. had some type of negative. I'm just talking about in terms of, for somebody whose films have been respected as much as Affleck's, like, you would think, like, he'd been, he would have gotten an acting nomination by now. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. the the Argo directing snub really genuinely does feel like an accident, and I think we've talked about it before about how like the awards timeline that year was a little bit weird, and I think that contributed right. to it. Well, but anyway, and that eventual best director lineup does feel like a lot of people like whatever was in the water that year was people throwing their support behind a number of unlikely potential. Michael and, Hanukkah like, see, and Ben Zeitlin specifically. You see previous winners and recent winners not get nominated that year despite best picture nominations and it feels very much like they thought those people were safe or they thought you know you've already won yours like well and by the time then the oscars happen for affleck we're really going far afield we'll get back to redford in a second um (laughs) by the time the oscars happen it still feels like the kind of vibe you would have for a celebrated actor director right by that time he wins Best Picture, you realize that, like, oh, if he had been nominated in Best Director, he would have 100% won Best Director. Like, um, Right, right. Well, I think, I think it's not a bad comparison, and it's not a bad line to draw, because I think when you see these actor-directors, uh, you know, or these people, these people we know for acting who eventually move to directing and it gets awards buzz or, you know, even before anybody has seen a movie, I think, you know, Robert Redford is always the name that is thrown out as the case example of why the Academy likes it or proof mm-hmm. that the Academy, you know, respects that. You know, Redford feels very much like the first name that is always thrown out as, mm-hmm. you know, evidence yeah. um the way we were by the way though, not nominated that... for best picture but it was nominated for six other academy awards including best actress for barbara streisand yes fyi um we talk a little bit about the 1980s oscars though since that's yes. when sissy spacek and robert redford won their oscars that was the year that ordinary people won best picture somewhat i remember uh, certainly Still controversially i think <laughs> More so when I was younger, but maybe it's because I know more people now who stick up for uh, ordinary people. And maybe that's just I'm talking about my friend Chris Schleicher, but like other <laughs> um, who is uh, the uh, the biggest ordinary people stand that I know. Um, ordinary people. But beat out I Raging Bull. A good movie. Yeah. And, yeah, and a lot it's... of people talk about and when they talk about especially before Scorsese won his Oscar, when they talk about the great Scorsese snubs, he lost to two actor-turned-directors. He lost to first Robert Redford for Ordinary People with Raging Bull, and then Goodfellas lost to Dances with Wolves and Kevin Costner. And that was an interesting little uh, awards footnote for (laughs) sure. But I think now people have come around more on Ordinary People. Ordinary People is one of those movies that I still haven't seen because I'm waiting for the optimal way to see it. And I really should just, as I did with Casablanca, just be like, I'm just going to watch this movie rather than like waiting for the optimal, you know, repertory screening or something like that. I'm just going to fucking watch it. It hasn't always been the most available. No, it hasn't. changed. It's, I mean, I think it's pretty regularly on Paramount Plus. And I think it just got a Blu-ray release. Yeah. Um, 
it, I mean, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. This will be the I, I think I am also, I'm more frustrated by like the lingering like uh, misogyny that people don't realize they speak about that movie with than I am with like people frustrated that Raging Bull didn't beat it for Best Picture. It's interesting that you say misogyny because like it's... People hate that Mary Tyler Moore character and it's so unfair. But it's like, it's still seen as Robert Redford's accomplishment. You know what I mean? It's like still seen as like the accomplishment of of a male director. What I'm saying is I I get more frustrated by the way people still talk about her character. Sure, sure, sure. That's what I mean. Sure. Um, Yeah. But that's an interesting Best Picture lineup. That is Ordinary People, Raging Bull, we mentioned, Coal Miner's Daughter, which Spacek wins for Best Actress uh, for playing Loretta Lynn. That is a Best Picture nominee as well. The Elephant Man, uh, which is David Lynch's first Best Director nomination, um, uh, is Best Picture nominee. And then Roman Polanski's Tess, which... Uh, we're all dying to talk about. So all of all of those movies, only Coal Miner's Daughter doesn't get the corresponding Best Director nomination. That goes Richard to... Rush for the Stunt Man, which is also an odd uh, Peter O'Toole nomination. Best Actor nomination. Yeah, but like these acting categories are pretty stacked. You look at Best Actor, De Niro wins for Raging Bull, but like also nominated is like Duval, John Hurt, Jack Lemmon, Peter O'Toole. That's just like all killer, no filler. Best Actress is Sissy Spacek beating out Ellen Burstyn, Mary Tyler Moore, Jenna Rollins for Gloria, Goldie Hawn for Private Benjamin. Goldie Hawn's only other nomination, right, after Cactus Flower, I think, is Private Benjamin? I think that's true. I think that's right. Like, these are, like, stacked stacked categories full of actors Have you ever stars. seen Resurrection? No, I keep hearing... Uh, keep hearing that like it's a like it's a movie is... that everybody's on everybody's lips but like i've heard many many people say it's worth watching if you ju- it's it's not i don't think it's a good movie by any stretch but like if it existed in the world without a best actress nomination it would just be a movie yeah but it is the strangest movie <laughs> she's like clairvoyant right it is it is the strangest movie to net acting nomination. This is why the 80s are I wild feel. though because like the 80s have a few movies like this, especially in best actress when it really that idea that like Oscar movies are so slanted towards men really kind of does present itself a lot in the 1980s where movies like uh Resurrection or like Jane Alexander getting nominated for Testament or um, that's one I want to see or what is he does is like Jessica Lange getting nominated for country or uh, Redgrave getting nominated for the Bostonians or Jane Fonda getting nominated for the morning after. Do you know what I mean? Where it's like these great yeah. actresses who are in movies that are, are otherwise not these big Oscar uh, uh, plays, right? Pauline Collins for Shirley Valentine, another movie, which I, need to finally see um sissy spacek was probably always going to win though she'd previously been nominated for carrie yes uh and was probably like already by then maybe seen as a little bit overdue between like carrie and like she's not nominated for badlands but like by the time 1980 comes around she's seen as this like premier actress and she's also playing a beloved real life country music star in loretta lynn Right. And it's Prototype. a good movie also. Like Coal Miner's Daughter is a good movie. 
Like it's not like it's this like cheap biopic win. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a right, really good right. movie. And I mean, I think that movie was a pretty big hit too. Probably. I immediately watched Carrie after I finished Old Man and the Gun last night. Oh wow, nice. And it's so interesting that most of her nominations do come from the 80s because I think we think of her as a quintessential 1970s actress. Yeah. Um, God, I wish she was getting more right now than these, like, they seem like bargain basement TV shows, but she like, oh, does do wait, work I, in TV. I wanted to talk about that. Though. I know some people like them. I'm going to talk about that because the same year as Old Man and the Gun, she stars in the first season of Castle Rock, which was the Hulu series based on uh, Stephen King's sort of greater uh, universe of work. Um, she plays a character named Ruth Deaver who has dementia, but really it's she you find out sort of later in the season that she's sort of unstuck in time and she's going through um, uh you know, various times in her life and, and, and can't really art- articulate herself. And there's this one episode there where it all sort of comes together and it's really, really powerful. She gives a phenomenal performance. It uses that piece of music from Arrival, the Max Richter piece of music from Arrival <laughs> that makes me cry. So, um, uh, I always highly recommend at least that episode which like you probably can't watch in isolation because so much of it depends on realizing what else has been going on the whole season but she's tremendously good in that and that show for a lot of reasons was like never really on emmy's radar and it's mm-hmm. too bad because like she 100 percent would have deserved a sort of uh the kind of Emmy nomination that you get for being a very long-standing, well-respected actor, but it would have been super, super, super well-deserved. Anyway, Meanwhile, the one that she has been in that I think people have forgotten about now, and for good reason, it was still running by the time people forgot about it, uh, was Bloodline. Bloodline, yes. Which, I mean, she started out really good in, much like the show starts out really good and promising, and quickly devolves into dog shit. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I abandoned ship on that show. How far did you get into Bloodline? I never watched Bloodline. It was interesting. When I was at Decider, oh, uh, somebody else sort of covered that for us. Uh, but it was one of those shows that was like a bigger hit than people realized, even though like you can never trust Netflix when they say stuff's a hit. But like that was one of right. those shows where I would talk to people when I would go home for the holidays and whatever. And people would be like, you watch that show Bloodline? I really like that show Bloodline. And it's just like, huh. Okay. I mean, like, our Ozark basically, you know, took that and ball and ran it with out it. The window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, she's also currently on, I think the show is still, cont- no, it was canceled after its first season, Night Sky, the prime video show Night Sky that she and JK Simmons. They pushed that really hard. I guess nobody watched it. Yeah. Um, and she did a season of Homecoming, too. Right. Another show no one watches. Which season of Homecoming was that? I liked Homecoming a lot. I think she was on that first season. She was Julia Roberts' yes, mother. it was the 2018 season, which I think is the first. Homecoming, one of the early proponents of the half-hour drama, which I will stand by. I love the idea <laughs> of a half-hour drama. Um, I really en- I enjoyed especially that first season. I'm not sure if I stuck with that second season as much. But um, I, in, in general... Uh, uh, enjoyed that one for what it was but yeah again sissy i have spacek to grandstand and movies. say sissy spacek should have been cast as violet weston in august osage county oh 
There you go. Had she been, it would have been a good movie. Well, so says Chris File. There we go. Laid it down. She could have played Julia Roberts' mother again then for uh, yeah, for that. Make the profit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of like recent movies from like the post 2000s era um that she's in. Like obviously like she has a good laugh at the the shit pie and and the help and um is Charlize's mother in North Country? Is that right? Possibly. I think so. And then of course we talked about A Home at the End of the World, which is not a movie that a ton of people saw, but we both liked her very much in that. But yeah, in the bedroom does definitely feel like a an Oscar nomination that was not capitalized upon in the ensuing years. I do, yeah, I I, I would agree, and especially because she was probably second place. That was such a close. She had won the Golden Globe. Year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh God, and she's uh, amazing in it. Just, I think in. Representationally, I don't think we would trade that Halle Berry Oscar win for anything, but qualitatively, Spacek gives the better performance of the two of them. I mean, I think representationally, we would probably give a black actress best actress a lot earlier than Halle Berry. Well, certainly, um, but I mean, given what the realities were at the time. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Monstrous Ball is such a deep cringe um it is it is but but we love holly berry we holly berry and it's a great oscar moment and sometimes if something's a great oscar moment i'm and sissy spacek has an oscar already so like she's doing fine but had i had i a vote and were i voting purely on a performance sissy spacek would have had my vote yeah i don't I'd have to go back and look at everything, but I don't think that there's uh, any Oscar that it's nominated for that I wouldn't give in the bedroom. Yeah, tremendous uh, movie. Tremendous movie. Todd Field. Uh, Maybe Todd Field's best. If you ask me, uh, what about David Lowry? Uh, what What do we want to say about David Lowry before we start wrapping things up? I mean, such an exciting director. <laughs> because, really, like we've said, all of his movies feel so different. I really love him as a director. Um, lovely person to talk to. I talked a little bit about this when I when we had Katie on, talking about um, I interviewed him for Old Man of the Gun, in fact, and was just incredibly sweet and accommodating and a good conversationalist and uh, makes me want to root for him. The only movie, really, of those directing... I've never seen St. Nick, which was his feature debut. Um, but I've seen all his others... The only one I don't love, honestly, is Anthem Body Saints. And even Anthem Body Saints, I can look at that and be like, there is skill present here. There is good work I appreciate work being it for done. what it's reaching for. I just... But, like, I really I love Pete's Dragon. I really love A Ghost Story. I really love Old Man the Gun. I really love The Green Knight. And that all bodes very well for Peter Pan and Wendy, I would say. I honestly... I loved Pete's Dragon so much that it gives me so much optimism to a movie that I have absolutely no optimism for otherwise, which is Peter Pan and Wendy. Which, yeah. A, we don't need another Peter Pan movie. B, Disney Plus original, get out of town. Disney live-action remake. I know. Absolutely not. I Elevator know. straight to hell. I know. And But, like, I'll still watch that movie because his Pete's Dragon is so good, it feels so far removed from the quick cash grab, which... No shocker, it didn't make that much money. 
of the Disney live action remake things. Yeah. Also, that, I will like, say, not not excited for Jude Law as Captain Hook. Like he's going to do something <laughs> I, fun. I would have to agree. He's going to be fun. So there's that. Now I'm looking no. up to see who the kids are because I was like, oh, those kids are probably somebody's kids. And yes, in fact. Wendy is played by the daughter of Mila Jovovich and Paul W.S. Anderson, and uh, Peter is not the son of any famous people, as far as I can tell. Okay. Um, But yes. The thing you said about my repeated line of every variant of COVID COVID brings a new Pinocchio movie. (laughs) No. Uh, Peter Pan movies caused the pandemic. The last movie I saw in theaters before the oh, pandy, right. everything shut down for the pandy, was Ben Zeitlin's Wendy. That's true. God, I thought you were just being mean, but no, you, you're actually... Failure. People don't remember that movie. And I never know, saw it because I didn't want to have... I, I, what a failure. I want the best for Ben Zeitlin, and I didn't want to watch a movie and hate it. And by the time everybody hated it... It makes you almost respect, like, want to treasure Beasts of the Sun and Wild a little bit more, because it's like... It's very clear that it's like, well, this is just how this guy makes movies. But Beasts of the Southern Wild is the case where all of the things that are the things that he does go well. Everything goes well. And Wendy is the version where nothing goes well. Because it's like the kid performances are bad. The Uh. like uh, the optics of it feel very cringy. Like it. Yeah. 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 Is this new version of Peter Pan and Wendy? Uh, what are they doing to evade the Tiger Lily situation? Are they just... I don't think there's a Tiger Lily based off of these I think I, I think I see... I think there is. I think I had seen something that there is a Tiger Lily in this. But... Oh, there is a Tiger Lily. Yes. Well, so... we can hope that it's a native actress. Yes. But even still, there's the characterization there's does need to have some finessing i would say but yes i mean my guess honestly is because this will be a disney plus original is that people will watch it the day of and then forget about it immediately after unfortunately even though it's david lowry but if it keeps getting his movies funded we are fine with it because like david lowry i was just talking about this uh or maybe we just like brought it up uh friend and former guest Kyle Amato, David Lowry is like the one person that it's worked for, right? Where it's like you go and you do a Disney or Marvel movie, yeah. and then you can make whatever in, uh, independent movie you want. It's David Lowry, and it hasn't worked for anyone else that I can think of immediately. I mean, you're putting me on the spot, so I can't uh, I can't jump off of that exactly, but it definitely did Gary's, work for David Lowry. If you Lowry. can think of anybody else that it worked for, that they went and they made their own small movie... Uh, get at us in our menchies. See, now you're distracting me before we get into to IMDb game. And um, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did not. That was not my intention. Well, before we do that, I want to go through my uh, notes and see if there's anything else that I've forgotten to mention. Um, I also thought yes. towards like the mid uh, towards like last summer, I thought I saw rumors that David Lowry was doing a secret movie, but I could be wrong. Well, that was a ghost story, right? A ghost story kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, Well, yeah, a ghost story, nobody knew that it happened. So maybe he's doing it again. After Pete's Dragon. But I thought that there was at least rumors that it was happening again. Oh, yeah, I just bring bring up a ghost story because, like, like, he does, he can do that. Like, that's in his repertoire. Right. And, And David Lowry could absolutely, you know, 
continue to do things like that. Yeah. It's almost oh. like David Lowry is the Beyonce of movies. The only other thing I haven't mentioned is that they call... Well, we haven't talked about, and I want to do it briefly, how much I love Tom Waits in this movie. Tom Waits and Danny Glover are <laughs> part of uh, what they call the Over the Hill Gang in the uh, media at the time, are calling this little uh, group of senior citizen bank robbers, which made me, of course, think of uh, the old lady gang from The Real Housewives of Atlanta, uh, uh, Candy's mother and her aunts, her terrifying, <laughs> uh, meddling uh, mother and aunts who run the little restaurant down in Atlanta called The Old Lady Gang. Um, anyway, I love Tom Waits so much. Every time I see Tom Waits in a movie, I always just sort of... I know I am in for a very interesting and and very singular character. This is a guy who uh, gargled uh, uh, stones as a baby, I think, because like he has always had a voice uh, like this. His parents were um, uh, a piece of gravel and uh, a strip of sandpaper, and and we love him for that. Um, but when he's in like you know Altman movies or whatever, or like as Renfield in Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, he's I don't know uh, who he's in. Um, isn't he the devil in uh, 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 Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, or sort of a, a devilish figure? I want to say I fucking love him. He's great. He's great in this. Sense. Great as a uh, sort of a, a Robert Redford bestie. So, shout outs to Tom Waits and Danny Glover. <laughs> That's all I got. What else do you have? Um, I mean, I could give you 3,000 words on that bracelet scene again. Um, <laughs> it's pretty good. Uh, I, I like the... Oh, M for G's. We haven't mentioned the M for G's of it all. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It got two uh, Movies for Grown-Up nominees. Uh, obviously, Redford in Best Actor. Viggo Mortensen won that for Green Book. I think that's the one thing he won all season. Yeah. All the movie. Uh, Hugh Jackman for The Front Runner. John C. Riley again for Stan and Ollie. And Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate. Okay, that nomination, this is why we need to consider them a major precursor. Because everybody <laughs> said that that Defoe nomination was out of left field, but no, 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 no. There was the Emperor apparently there we go. watching their Julian Schnabel. Setting the agenda for all the Emperor in 2018. Yeah. It was nominated for Best Grown-Up Love Story. I think it should have won. Uh, What's a what better grown-up had... love story than this? Like, for God's sake. Right, well, Right. Well, okay, so there is one other movie that... Yeah. This movie, because it feels so romantic and so flirty and such... I uh, agree. I, I would maybe still give it the win, but there is one other movie. We'll get to it. What they had is the winner, the Blythe Danner Dementia movie. I had to look up what that movie was, because I had absolutely <laughs> forgotten it. Hillary Swank, I think, right? It's not a bad movie. Um, from what I remember, uh, it's just a very either. nondescript title. What they had, when especially when it's nominated alongside "All Is True," which is another sort of like, yeah, you know, it's a short not words. bad to mid movie that has some stuff going for it. Okay, uh, also nominated "All Is True," uh, previous episode "All Is True," on the basis of sex, and then private life a movie we could eventually do we should we both love it so much tamara jenkins. jenkins one of my favorite filmmakers even though she's only made three movies yeah um we've mentioned two we'll of them already in this podcast because we mentioned slums of beverly hills earlier yeah 
shout out to the savages so we can name all three <laughs> um the savages has been chilling on hbo max for a while which is great because it hasn't always been super available i should watch it again scaries I should if commemorate my watch... return to Buffalo with uh, watching uh, Savages again. Because, of course, that's set God. in Buffalo. Perfect movie. Fucking perfect movie. Um, Gary's Please Watch the Savages. All right. Um, I guess, what else do I want to say? I like the way that, you know, it doesn't feel like there's not closure to the love story. But, like, the love story feels like there's still story there when the movie leaves you. But, like the movie leaves with, you know, he could spend the rest of his life with Sissy Spacek, but he ends up going and robbing four banks in a day and gets arrested. I know. The movie leaves you with when he's arrested, he had a smile on his face. Yeah. And I think ultimately the movie feels like it's doing this character study of someone who maybe has a pathology or, you know, a compulsion towards a certain type of behavior or a certain type of evasion in a way yeah. of avoiding, you know, having a normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't ever feel like it comes down too hard on anything to try to pathologize the character study that it's doing, yeah. you know, um, I agree in a way that I think the movie's better for. Good movie. Old man and the gun. You know what? Good movie. <laughs> I'm just going to really say it. Movie. I'm just going to say it. Good movie. Good movie that people should, if they have seen it and did not have amazing things to say about it, they should revisit it and see if they And if it. you haven't seen it, uh, get to that because you will not regret. Step to it. Uh, Joe, would you like to move on to the IMDb game? Yes, let's. Uh, would you uh, like to uh, explain the IMDb game? <laughs> yes, why don't I? Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles' release years as a clue, and if that is not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. All right. Would you like to give or guess first? I'll give first. Who do you have for me? So I know you sometimes get annoyed with me when I give you a choice, but <laughs> I'm going to give you a choice because I, between either doing somebody who we've done before, but has a different, they're known for is different than it was when we did them, or okay. somebody who is harder, but a really interesting, like a very quirky, known for in in how it, in what it is composed of. I'm gonna take the latter because if I take the first one, I feel like there's a strong possibility I could remember what their IMDb used to be. Okay, all right, <laughs> and that feels like cheating. Okay, uh, then I will hold on to that other one for maybe when we have a guest. Okay, so uh, we've talked about. The great Pete's Dragon, uh, one of the stars of that movie, is Bryce Dallas Howard. So I'm going to have you guess Bryce Dallas Howard. But first, I'm going to say uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's known for has one television and one non-acting credit that is also television. Interesting. Is it a producing credit? Or? It's a directing credit. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, I think I might know. Well, was she also acting in it though? I don't believe so, but it is not a show that I watch. So, God, I'm giving you hints all uh, over the place. 
the other TV credit is um, Black Mirror. It is Black Mirror. Her episode of Black Mirror fucking rules. It's so good. The uh, one of the movies has to be The Help. Yep, The Help. Because Bryce Dallas Howard didn't used to have a full known for. She was, I think, the second person after Glenn Close who didn't, and now they both yeah. do, I guess. Bryce Dallas Howard's um, Black Mirror episode, by the way, was directed by Joe Wright, just to... Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> it's called Nosedive. You guys, if you if you dip in and out of Black Mirror, as I do, and you have not seen Nosedive, definitely check it out. It's maybe... It's not even the maybe... It's memed it's of the Black Mirror. It's definitely my favorite Bryce Dallas Howard performance in, his, in her entire career. I think she's excellent in it. Jurassic right. World. No. What's that face? No. Oh, it's a Jurassic World sequel. Yeah. Do you know uh, the names of the sequels? Dominion? Yes, Jurassic World Dominion, the one from 2022. So you've got three of four with Very no wrong guesses. That is a brand new movie that I know. no one I know saw. I know. Um, and made less movie, I think, made less money than Jurassic World's initially. Hasn't Haven't those sequels depreciated? Jurassic World. I mean, I think they all depreciated. Yeah. The second. I mean, they, the I didn't see the new one. The first two were abysmal, and I only guessed Dominion, thinking that it would be wrong because I cannot remember the, the second, second. It's Fallen Kingdom, I think. Movie. Right? Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Maybe. Sure. Okay. Like, even though that sounds um, like a video game title. <laughs> uh, all right. So you're three um, for three. Okay. You have no wrong guesses. TV show that she directed. Yes. But not okay. She's directed two episodes of this show. I keep giving no, you hints. not three for three, because I said Jurassic World. You can count that. Well, okay, fine. A soft, a soft wrong, because, like, you know. It'll, it'll still count. It's a soft wrong. Because um, I'm not going to be that generous to you to say that it doesn't count. Fucker! Okay. I would be like, no, wrong. All right. Um... Uh, okay, TV show that she directed. She is doing directing stuff right now, but what TV show did she direct? It's gotta be... Uh, it's gotta be something for, like, Apple... Um, could be Netflix, too. You know she's um, also attached to a remake, to direct a remake of Flight of the Navigator? Did you ever sure. watch that when you were a kid? Or am I, is that a thing where I I'm older not. than you? I didn't. We watched that um, in like school. I know what it is though. I know the VHS cover. Yeah. Um, okay. Television program that she's directed. I'm just going to say like, what? No, I was going to give you a hint, but then I realized that you're not, uh, you don't deserve hints yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, fuck. It's obviously semi-recent. Her documentary about dads was only, like, five years ago. Not even. 2019, so... Oh, okay, so it is three very and a half years recent. Ago. Yeah. Um, Emily in Paris? Not Emily in Paris. All right, so we're counting that as a second strike. Um, the years of the two episodes that she directed on this show were 2019 2020. Okay. It is a ongoing show. Still running. And she's directed another episode of the spinoff of this show. It's a Marvel show. It's The Mandalorian. It's The Mandalorian. It's not a Marvel show. It is a Star Wars show. But yes. Uh, Yes. Two episodes of The Mandalorian. Good for Bryce Dallas Howard. 
Yeah, no. it's a weird. That's a weird known for. I'm just gonna say it. It's an odd. Like it's it, probably weird because she didn't used to have a full known for. Well, there we go. But I don't think it's a God bad damn, known justice for. Justice for the village. Justice for the village. Justice for like just on a pure financial level, it should be the first Jurassic World and not the third one. Like that's just silly. Um, right. What if I said justice for her after? What if I said that? Even like strangely like <laughs> podcast. She's probably I would say goodbye. She's probably higher build in Twilight Eclipse than uh than you think. But like it's weird that Lady in the Water isn't there. It's weird that the village isn't there. Yeah. She's All right. the titular lady in the water. All right, who do you got for me? Okay, so for you, I pulled from the David Lowry stable of performers, someone who I think we uh, would think would be an odd uh, person for a David Lowry movie, but is good in the David Lowry movie that they are in. Um, someone who we talked quite a bit about in recent years and then completely stopped because they kind of went away, Alicia V. Cantor. Okay. I went perhaps easier on you, but Alicia V. Cantor is your known for. Danish girl. Danish girl, her Oscar win. Ex Machina. Ex Machina, the movie that I would argue they thought they were giving her an Oscar for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> would have been the better choice. Um, I mean, when Ex Machina won that visual effects Oscar, I was like, oh yeah, I we, mean, we like, could have just not just... We could have just done it because of one movie. But that, but also, if they would have just done it for Ex Machina and given her, it wouldn't be a bad Oscar. It would have been more uh, appropriately supporting, and it would have been a better qualitative win. So, right. uh, Anyway, so it's two, not for that horrible movie. Um. Anyway, two more. You have no wrong guesses. The thing is, is. Tomb Raider enough of a bomb to to disqualify it from IMDb consideration. I will say what I think is hard about Alicia Vikander is that years will not help you because when she makes a movie, she also makes 15 other movies that year. <laughs> right. I'm going to guess Green Knight, actually. Incorrect. Damn it. Is it a Tomb Raider? It is not Tomb Raider, also incorrect. Okay. Uh, in that case, your years are 2014 and 2015. Oh, God. A third movie in 2015. Oh, wasn't that... Didn't she also have Testament of Youth that year that everybody was like, the year, the year of Vikander? Is it Testament that? Testament of Youth okay. is the 2014 movie. Oh, it's the 2014? But I do think... Ex Machina is even credited to 2014. I think it did, like, Fantastic Fest or something. I think it did. I think you're right. I think Testament of Youth didn't come out in the States until 2015, although don't quote me on that. All right, so there's a 20... Right, exactly. There's a 2015. The year... So basically we're saying her entire known for... Is one year. One year of domestic release. Yes. God. (laughs) Oh. Is it a movie I've seen? I think you've seen it. I love oh it. oh oh! I love this movie. It's the man from Uncle. It the man fucking from Uncle. rocks. I love that movie so much. Yeah, a man from Uncle. The man from Uncle uh, whips ass. It that does. movie is so good. It does uh, enough to even Nikki. I should have been nominated. Uh, Henry Cavill is so charming in that movie, and I will say, even uh, 
we're not in the habit of recommending Army Hammer movies these days, but like even with that caveat, still go see this movie. It's so good. It's right. so much fun. Right. Um, who are the other is wonderful? Who are the other ancillary people in that movie? Because like that cast uh, has some fun ones. Um, hold on, I'm looking. I'm it pulling up. it up too. Jared Harris. Yeah, Jared Harris is fun. Guy Ritchie, man, like he's so hit and miss, but when he hits, he can be really fun. Unquestionably, his best movie. Oh, absolutely. Oh, Hugh Grant is who I was thinking of. Like, who else is in this? Right. Yeah, I mentioned Hugh Grant. Oh, sorry. Um, I was probably thinking of Elizabeth Debicki being unfathomably tall in this movie and so good. <laughs> it's such a good movie. I love it so much. All right. Um, good IMDb game. Good IMDb game. Great episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thisheadoscarbuzz. Sorry that those are different. Uh, Joe, where can the <laughs> listeners find uh, you and uh, more of you? Twitter and uh, ins- uh, Instagram, not Instagram, Twitter and letterboxed at Joe Reed. Hey, spelled if you R-E-I-D. want to promote your I Instagram don't. I sure don't. I, I, mine is locked and uh, there's really nothing interesting going on in there. So there's no reason for you to follow me on Instagram. It's fine. Uh, follow the podcast. That's much more interesting and fun. No, uh, Joe Reed at Twitter and, uh, Letterboxd. And I am also on Twitter and Letterbox at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mebius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review in particular really helps helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So rub a rock and some sandpaper together, and maybe you won't get Tom Waits. You'll get a nice review. Uh, that's all for this week. We hope you'll be back next week for more. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.